Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoriamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. We all get intimidated by showing ourselves for whatever reason we think if I really show who I am and, uh, you know, somebody goes, then it's going to crush me. Well, it's not going to crush me. It doesn't crush you if somebody does that. Somebody will do that many times. And once you accept that that's not why you're doing it, you're doing it because that's your form of expression. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Winter, the fifth song from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. David. Hi, Eve. We're back on the Little Earthquakes bandwagon. I know. I was never off it. Back on the earthquake train. I'm feeling empowered. You're feeling empowered? Yeah. Post precious things. Yeah. I was getting ready to come over today. And as I typically do or am, I was in the middle of my rather extensive beauty regimen to get ready. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, so you can make me comb that doesn't make you Jesus. Well, yes. What am I doing? Why am I getting all prettied up for Eve? I don't have anything to prove. So I threw down my comb and I came over as is. And if you can't love me like this, then you can't love me at all. It's fine. <laughs> don't worry about it. You can comb next time. Okay. <laughs> That's what they always say. It was my turn today. Um, you can comb next time. You know, what's interesting is that we're recording this song, Winter, in the middle of summer and it's from little earthquakes and la just experienced an earthquake yesterday i know and it wasn't so little it wasn't it was 6.6 on the richter scale it's pretty big it was pretty big Mm -hmm. what was your earthquake experience like well first of all i got accused of causing it by as i so often do the person i was with turned to me and said is that you (laughs) yes that is me that is me shaking all of california and some of vegas right i mean from where we are it was actually pretty mild i didn't feel like it was mild from where you were Mm. maybe it was mild but Mm. where i sit i felt like i was in the center of it all you're all of 10 minutes away from me different worlds well i felt maybe because you were born and raised in california and i was just groomed in california but i was sitting at my desk working on the podcast when all of a sudden i heard like the ground start to settle and i was like wait that's weird it's it felt like the people above me in the apartment above me were like grinding their feet in and all of a sudden i felt like we started moving i'm like no this isn't an earthquake and then it just didn't stop for like a full minute yeah it was a long it was a long one you're right yeah 
So I had enough time to get up out of my chair, stand in my room to be like, oh yeah, my stuff is moving, go into the doorway. Then I thought like, oh, you're not supposed to stand in a doorway anymore. So then I kind of like stood around and I walked back into my room and I was like, well, just sit here. And then I thought maybe I should go under my bed. And then I decided to tweet about it. Isn't it funny how conventional wisdom and survival techniques change over time? You're like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to go in the doorway. No, it's not true anymore. Do I do chest compressions? Do I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in an earthquake anymore. Well, am I supposed to go under a bed? I think a bed's safe, right? I think underneath something sturdy is always a good idea. I have a platform bed. Oh, we don't have to brag about it. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good thing. Okay. Next earthquake, I'll be ready. You were not around for the Northridge earthquake, right? No, that was... I mean, I was I was barely born. I was I had yeah. just been born. Right. We heard about you it. You said yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not fun. So there's always that moment when one starts where you're like, okay, is this it? Is it going to get worse? So I think it's that fear. Like, is it going to get worse? That makes the moment really panicky. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. It may get worse, so I need to find a place to hide, like, or to sec- to secure myself, not hide, right. but protect myself. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about little earthquakes, listen, at what the heart of it is that what Tori's saying, these things that will rock your world and could destroy you, but little versions. Did you not truly understand what she meant? Until, not until yesterday. Right. <laughs> not until that earthquake. And I'm like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Well, we're here talking about winter today. Winter is the fifth track from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes, which was released on January 13th, 1992 in the United Kingdom and February 25th, 1992 in the United States. And we pulled that date from the Collectibles book, which we believe as being accurate, even though the internet has disputing dates for the UK release. It's ridiculous that this has been one of the most difficult facts for us to confirm Mm -hmm. when the album, her first album, actually came out. You want to talk about these credits? Acoustic piano, vocals, and written by Tori Amos. Mm -hmm. Orchestra arranged and conducted by Nick DeCaro. Irish war drum, Eric Ross. Recorded by John Beverly Jones, assisted by Leslie Ann Jones, mixed by John Kelly, and produced by David Segerson. Yeah. A who's who of early Tori Amos collaborators, would you say? Yeah, I sure would. And it's strange to see a list of credits on a song with a string arrangement and not see our friend Phil Chanel's name there, right? The final Chanel. The final Chanel down. (laughs) It is interesting to see... Any string arrangements that aren't Phil, because, you know, they have such a long-standing history now and a, a great working relationship now, and they've worked so much together, but he's... All, and he he is actually credited in the Little Earthquakes booklet. Can you believe that? For what? Not only for keyboard programming on Happy Phantom, but also for finger symbols on Silent All These Years. Oh, man. Says Philly. So They had to bring in the big guns for that. They really like, did. Like, not just anyone can play finger it's, symbols. It's like when they get Dame Judi Dench to play, like, a housemaid. <laughs> yeah. Like, we need a professional. We, we can't like, waste any time. Someone who can just come in and do the job. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. So they got Philly. Philly Chanel, finger symbols, but that's on silent all these years. But here he doesn't appear. These arrangements were done by Nick DeCaro. Wait Ooh. a minute. Yes. So are the finger symbols, there's a triangle, right? Like in the chorus of Silent All These Years, What If I'm a Mermaid? Ding. Are those the finger symbols or is that just percussion in um, It general? might be the finger symbols. It could be percussion. It could, well, it if sounds it like... isn't, I want to know where they are. Oh, then it must be the finger must symbols. Must be, right? Must be. Has to be. In a classic moment. So this ding that we've heard all our lives. What if I'm a mermaid in these... Thanks, Phil. The ding heard round the world. The ding heard round the world. No one's ever given those Phil credit. Those couldn't be anyone else's fingers. <laughs> those, yeah. <laughs> those fingers right on time, mm-hmm. right on tempo. Mm-hmm. Those are Phil's. So what do you think about winter, huh? I've said it before. 
So I guess I should say it again on this, the winter episode. This was one of my other gateways, along with Crucify, into my Tory fandom. Interesting. So this was song two that really roped me in and pulled me down the rabbit hole. So... How did you get to Winter if you just were playing Crucify? I wish I could tell you. I think at some point I just let the album play and Girl Through Silent, I was like, or Precious Things, I guess. I was like, yeah, great. I like it. But Winter, I was feeling it at the time. What what were you feeling about it? The the piano and vocal and the string arrangement was really gorgeous, is really gorgeous. I think this is kind of one of the most stunning choruses she's ever written. Um, The chorus or the bridge? The chorus. Okay. The bridge, too. Yeah. But I think the chorus is quite hooky. How about you? Um, I love this song, of course. You can't be a Tori Amos fan and not love Winter. For me, it's perfectly placed on Little Earthquakes as a come down from Precious Things. Mm-hmm. I think it's the perfect song to follow Precious Things. I agree. Great sequencing. Yeah. The sequencing is phenomenal on Little Earthquakes. That goes without saying. It's funny because I'm the first person to cry Anytime there's a father, son, anything. If there's a movie that has a father and a son estranged or coming together or even just in the movie, I'm like watershed. Anytime what about go- when they switch bodies and learn valuable lessons about and one like another? like big? No, like father, like son or oh, vice okay. versa. Remember in the late 80s when we were all obsessed with yeah. body switching? What I do was remember. that? I what don't did that know. mean? We all just wanted to be someone else. Still do. We just wanted to all wear the shoulder pads of our adult parents. Uh. No, that doesn't really get to me. But when I go to a baseball game and I see a father with a son and kind of teaching him the game, I'm just like, that's it. I'm done. I'm a sopping mess. You're crying into your bag of peanuts. I am. I don't know what it is about the father-son connection. So you think, so you would think that I would connect to the song on a very deep level because it's a song that Tori's written about her father, among other things, I'm sure, but primarily for her dad. And so I'm not sure why it hasn't really resonated to my soul yet. Maybe you're just afraid to go there. Maybe I am afraid to go there, but not today. I heard Jodie Foster a little bit there talking to Hannibal Lecter. Why don't you point that hot power perception at yourself, Eve? Maybe you're afraid to. (laughs) So it's a big show. We're very excited to get started. Anything else you got to say, David, before we get on with it? I'm saving it. (laughs) Saving it for the episode. Oh, yeah. Well, we need content. Yeah. All right. We'll be back. This is the Midnight String Quartet with their cover of Winter, and I will link to this on our show notes at songsoftoriamus.com. What's your earliest musical recollection? Um, that's a tough one, I know. I saw this big, 
big black piano in my father's study. It was massive. And I looked up and I said, hi. And I really wanted to become friends with it. And it looked so foreboding. Because, I mean, it was huge. It was one of those old uprights. And um, I just crawled up on the stool and decided to uh, become best friends. And that's the first thing I remember. And I remember my mother putting telephone books under me so that I could, um, first of all, reach the keys. And I couldn't reach the pedals forever. So, you know, you, you had to let a few things slide. <laughs> yeah. That was a little bit from CFNY Toronto Radio on March 5th, 1993. Thanks to our fabulous researcher, Shay Stymack, who put together our show notes and dusted off that clip for us. Thanks, Shay. So... Winter was the fourth UK Little Earthquake single, and it was Tori's first of numerous CD singles to be released in a two-part CD format. Really? This was after, wasn't Silent first? Well, I mean, a gun, technically. But there was a two-part for Silent also. According to the Collectibles book, they said it was Tori's first of numerous CD singles to be released in a two-part CD format. Part one includes the unreleased tracks, The Pool, Take to the Sky, and Sweet Dreams. Part two is a beautifully packaged limited edition picture CD, including three cover versions of tracks that would become live favorites of Tori's. The Rolling Stones' Angie, Led Zeppelin's Thank You, and especially Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Well, we'd have to check, but I have to believe Silent with Banana King and Song for Eric came out before. That was later. That came out after everything, so... According to the Collectibles book, it says, Postponed from May, Silent All These Years was re-released in August and became the sixth and final UK single from Little Earthquakes. Wow, okay. So there was a re-release that included the... That was definitely the two box set. You're talking about Upside Down, Mina Gun Thoughts, Ode to the Banana King, Eric, and Happy Phantom Live. Yes. That was after okay. winter. Which is interesting because the album had kind of taken off and for a while... That Crucify box with the art prints and the mm -hmm. live tracks and that silent were hard to find. Right. So maybe they were actually pretty limited at the time. At the time. Mm -hmm. Then they were like, give them to people. <laughs> give the people what they want and need. I needed it. I definitely needed it. You know what else I needed? Winter. As many versions of it as possible. Give me handwritten lyrics. Give me handwritten lyrics. Now let's talk about these winter versions since it's still the beginning of the show. You want to just get into it? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, winter CD single part one was released on March, and we just did the track listing, right? Part one and part two of the limited edition double CD thing. Also, there was a seven-inch single on vinyl, which was Winter and the Pool, and the cassette single was Winter and the Pool as well. Mm. Then Germany released it as a CD single with Winter, the Pool, and Teen Spirit. And it says, the German Winter CD single borrows Winter and the Pool from the UK Winter CD single. It's like, can I borrow you for just a minute? Can I grab you for a second? Just for a second. I just need to borrow you for just one second. <laughs> and it takes Smells Like Teen Spirit from the UK Winter Part 2 CD single, Packaged in a slim jewel case, contrary to the UK jewel box, and limited edition digipack. That's a weird mix and match. It is a weird mix and match. Mm -hmm. The Germans, they just do whatever they want. And they all crop the photo of the horse differently. Cut the head right off. Mm. The Australian winter CD single and cassette single have the same track listing. Winter smells like Teen Spirit and Angie. And it says, Australian winter CD single in a cardboard sleeve features the same tracks on the CD single and cassette single. This single features the same tracks as the UK winter part too, with the exception of omitting thank you. They didn't thank it. 
<laughs> guess not. So then let's talk about the U.S. release of Winter, which was, re- it says, the beautiful Digipack single, which is what I had. Yeah. The beautiful Digipack CD single includes reproductions of Tori's handwritten lyrics to all five tracks. The disc is a picture CD, which is virtually identical to the U.S. Winter two-track promo-only CD single. B-sides are taken from the UK Winter Part 1 single, except for Upside Down, which first appeared on Me and a Gun and then on Silent All These Years. Until Hey Jupiter was released in 1996, Winter was probably the only US CD single that was more elaborately packaged than a UK single. The cover of the CD declares that it is limited edition. However, it is still relatively easy to find more than four years after the release, and now more than 20 years after its release. But I will say that was always the one banging around in the A section if you went looking at the singles at the mm-hmm. record store. There was always the winter wink wink limited edition yeah. US. Yeah. And they do crop the horse pretty close on that one. Uh-huh. And the picture on the CD reminds me of the flowers in the video, but just like dried up and dead. <laughs> just like yeah. me. My soul. Yeah. That's what I thought. Is that David's soul? <laughs> oh, no. Those are the flowers that, from the winter video. Familiar. So let's talk about where winter appears. You want to start that? Yes. Tell me everywhere. And I'm going to comment. I'll give a rating of the medium that it appears. One okay. through five stars. Okay, go. All right. The Coming piece. in hot on Little Earthquakes at track five. Five stars. Oh. Little Earthquakes VHS music video. Five stars. Oh. Winter CD singles. I give them all five stars. Oh, all right. Breezing through. Just to be clear, we're on a five star scale, right? Yeah, yeah like of it's course. it's not out of 10. Right. Something crazy. No, five stars. Winter seven inch single. Five stars. Do you have that? Yes, I do. The vinyl? Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. Winter single. Five stars. Winter limited edition CD single. Five and a half stars. Mm. Winter additional single released in the US. Five stars. Winter CD maxi single released as a Christmas special. Five stars. Winter also appeared as a live B-side on 1,000 Oceans. A thousand oceans. It was a hyper CD maxi single. A thousand oceans. And I give that five stars. Glory of the 80s part two single. Five stars. And Tales of a Librarian. Four stars because of the omission of any Pele material. And for no other reason. So let's take a listen to the reworked section of the Tales of a Librarian version. also appeared on three of the original bootlegs in 2005 manchester london and boston star rating five okay and then it appeared on a piano in 2006 five stars five stars it appeared on four different legs and boots toronto milwaukee chicago and vancouver five stars i'm glad it was on four i get freaked out when legs or boots come in odd numbers live at montreux 10 stars i'm giving it yes 10 out of 5 10 out of 5 i don't want to get ahead of ourselves but that's probably my favorite performance of the song. Okay, period. well, Live in Montrose, top-notch quality. I know, the, the, whole, the whole thing, but specifically the performance of Winter. Oh, I can't wait. We'll get there. Okay. 2010's live special limited edition thing from Russia with Love. Mm-hmm. Five stars. Okay. Gold Dust, five stars. <laughs> okay. And Little Earthquakes reissue, Deluxe. That came out in 2015. And that I'll give all uh, the stars. Five stars. Whatever stars we have left, you get it. Five stars. Congratulations. Yay. <laughs> so 
You know there was an early demo of this song? You know what's funny? I have a hard time with some of these demos. Tell me why. Particularly the the Under the Pink ones. Why? I've long suspected that what were released as demos on bootlegs were just early like radio solo performances. Hmm. And back then we had no real way of verifying that. But these little earthquake ones are clearly demos because they're alternate takes with percussion mm-hmm. and they're experimenting. Mm-hmm. So maybe that means other subsequent demos did leak. I believe that the little earthquakes demos were demos. Yeah. Because that was a time in her life where she was you can you can truly see that she's cutting demos, putting them on cassette tapes, and then distributing them. Probably. Right. And who knows where they ended up exactly. and who had them. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Like how the why can't Tori read demos kind of surfaced. Because right. you've got to imagine that she's putting cassette tapes out and sending them everywhere and someone kept a copy. I didn't get any. This is an early demo of winter. Here we go. And we'll talk about it. Okay. interesting blueprint right and you can hear some ideas that they kind of dialed back and some that they ended up going with Mm -hmm. but i think this is a case where it's very much a work in progress and i think what we ended up with was definitely the polished final perfected version a lot of times demos it's so rare that we get demos from tori and i think the ones that she has shared with us have kind of a purity about them but this again definitely seems like a work in progress so it's kind of an interesting window into the process i was playing little earthquakes the other day on a very high quality system and i was playing it from spotify which you can assume are the highest quality tracks and i have mine there's a way that you can set what you're playing to be the highest quality Mm -hmm. and i have that set of course because you know you're an audiophile. No, because I have unlimited data. Okay. (laughs) So i'm listening to earthquakes and i haven't really listened to it on spotify on that on those speakers I was listening to ever before. And it gets through leather and it comes into mother. And there was such a hiss at the beginning of mother. It made me realize like, Oh, she was, she's recording this not on a boozy, not in controlled conditions. There was like actual room noise and a lot of it. And I thought that was so charming. Mm -hmm. I just felt like this was a moment to go back in time and see where she was and just playing from her heart. The whole album, just playing from her heart and playing from her soul. You felt like these songs were vital and important. It's interesting to hear, we have several references to this album being expensive Mm -hmm. and to having a lot of money behind it. Mm -hmm. 
And independent of those last four tracks that she recorded at the very end to Mm -hmm. kind of, I don't know, save the project as far as the label was concerned, Mm -hmm. it's interesting because Mother was one of the first songs. Right. So it does seem like their resources were limited. And even though there was a budget on this album and some resources behind it, it wasn't... I don't know what we would compare it to, but well, it you have was to still... look at. I mean, you have to look at things like Nick DeCaro must have been pretty expensive because he was at the top of his game. He was very popular. Mm-hmm. Not only did they get him, but they got like the orchestra. So it's not like she's playing, you know, like synth strings. They're actually getting live players right. for this, for Flying Dutchman, for signing all these years. I can to get Ian Stanley. I feel like there's a lot of little things here and there. Not to mention they probably build moving her to London on the little earthquakes maybe so do we think that across all of these songs the backbone meaning tori piano and vocals was recorded under modest conditions shall we say and the money was spent on bringing in all the other players and the producers after the fact maybe Mm -hmm. i mean if i had to say something about it it feels to me like i can understand why it would be an expensive record for the time for a an artist who had sort of flopped with her first attempt I can see why they might be like, okay, it's getting a little pricey. You only get $4,000 more to do these last four songs. Right. Whereas she says they wanted her to do one song. She's like, I'm going to do four. Mm-hmm. I can see why. But you were saying that in general, this album has kind of a homemade charm to it. I wouldn't say that others. a homemade charm. Not homemade. But there's a simple beauty. There's like a, the beauty of its simplicity. It's not too complicated. It doesn't feel so overproduced. Even when you have moments where she's working with a, another producer who's not Eric Ross, you can understand that in the Eric Ross tracks, they're probably sitting in her apartment doing a lot of the work there. But even in the times when he's not producing, it doesn't feel overproduced. David Sigerson's tracks, they feel like perfect. Mm-hmm. So there's a simplicity to it. It's really charming and really comforting now to go back to. And I think Winter is a good example of that. There's a lot going on in the production of this album, but none of it seems busy or overwrought. If you were to just play Winter for a casual listener who'd never heard it before and ask them to tell us what they heard, they would probably just say and piano mm-hmm. but there is that irish war drum mm-hmm. there's the strings but they're very subtle and a word that we go back to a lot but it's true is texture and i think it takes repeated listens to pick up on all of that the strings to me are such a moment that i can't imagine anyone listening to this not grab not having those strings grab them from the first listen because mm-hmm. they're so powerful and where they're placed and how they come in through that bridge that's one of the most moving moments in tori's catalog i agree I yeah that bridge is intense and then with the video but i can't <laughs> wait to get there because it seemed so profound and moving which it was at the time when it came out and when she wrote it when she was like what 28 Mm -hmm. and she's talking about hair being gray dreams on the shelf well think about it at 28 you're about you're approaching 30 and you never feel older than when you're 28 and you're like oh my god i'm about Mm -hmm. to be 30 well up until Mm -hmm. you're 28 you've never (laughs) felt older well you certainly feel older you've never been older so that part's true but you feel like oh my god my life everything everything i had it all now I'm 28. I might as well be dead. I can't. <laughs> we can't. We can't start there with this episode. But you have. We to, can end there, maybe. But uh. but you knew. How, you know what it was like. Like I felt when I was approaching 30. Like oh my god, my life is over. I actually didn't. You didn't feel that I way. Know. Well, you're a lucky one. A lot of Am people. Am I? Because I got it now. Well, take your pick. It took you a while. Ugh. But when you're. I've always I, been a late bloomer. 
when I was 30, I felt like life was over and I didn't know, like, I felt like I should have it all figured out by now. And, and I love the honesty of it. Yeah, she's only 28. We could look back on it now and kind of smile to ourselves about that moment. But her earnest 28-year-old Tori really believes, like, hair is gray and the fires are burning. So many dreams on the shelf. Yeah, and I don't, it doesn't make me want to, like, pat the song or Tori on the head condescendingly like, oh girl, if you only knew what was to come. But it's funny how profound and true it felt then, let alone how much more so now Now, is what I'm saying. I agree. Should we read some quotes? Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Here's the earliest quote we have about winter. This is from the Daily Telegraph, December 1991. The article says, When we met, Amos is contemplating the return to childhood so many people make at Christmas. Quote, It's like a friend of mine was saying, she says with a toss of her flame red hair, When you leave your own house, you're 30. On the way to the airport, you're 25. By the time you're walking up to your parents' drive, you're five years old again. I don't have that experience. You don't? No. Oh, I do for sure. You do? Every time. Are you joking? No, I'm not joking. Okay. Explain that to me. Not that I feel like I'm five years old, but for me, my parents will always be my parents. And though we've reached a different understanding, and of course, our relationship has changed, they're still always the parents. It's not like my parents are my best friends now. She's my mom, but she's a cool mom. I don't know. There's something about me that will always defer to them and want their approval. I don't know. I think that's kind of what she's saying. Interesting. What's that like? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, because I don't know the difference. So Mm. it's interesting to hear that that's not your experience. Let's play this quote. This is from Westwood One on February 27th, 1992. And this was a long one, David, but we can handle it. (laughs) Everybody here wants to listen to it, right? So sit back, grab a bubbly, and listen. I think that if those people had to be stripped down to the basics of who they were, this would be a different place. It all goes back to dealing with yourself because when you do your needs change you don't look at things the same way you move you change your life you call different things to you when you really start looking at yourself it can be an incredibly painful process and then you've got to giggle you've got to have some moments of laughter in it or it'll just choke you to death i mean enough depression for one day (laughs) You know, I don't find my record depressing. There are moments of incredible um, acknowledgement of when I've been not true to myself, when I listen to everybody else. But i got to take responsibility for that. So what? So what? Okay. I'm going to move on from that. Yeah, a lot of that comes during her son's just, she's been everybody else's girl, and she's been her own girl, and this one about where you... Love me the way I love you. It will winter that I think when you're going to love you as much as I do. Yeah. It seems like in a lot of them, it's because you've realized it now you're coming back around to to doing it, to being your own girl. But you had to go through a big process. Oh, It's not depressing. No, I don't see it as depressing at all. It's like looking at at your life you can't look at it as oh god I've made so many mistakes you've got to say okay I've had some real interesting highways some have had gravel on my road I haven't had this smooth tar on my road I've gone through some bridges that have broken a bit and I've had to you know pull the car across with a a line on it so that it could barely make it across and I think that you can't be ashamed of your past 
I mean, if we really got down to it, so what if you were Swin and did have babies on pikes when you were a Viking and terrorizing villages? I mean, you know, maybe you're even now not into that. You want to do something different. What, you're never going to change? Well, you would have to be ashamed of if you didn't learn from those other things, you know, the past. Well, yeah, and then you're just completely unconscious. So when I say that you're just uh, numb and you're not even thinking of your past as, as anything to learn from, the past is an incredible gift. So what if you were a bully? Okay, so what? So maybe you were an abuser. So, you know, you take responsibility, you look at it, you admit it, you accept that part of yourself, you acknowledge it, you don't run from it, you don't make excuses for it, you do it. And you don't keep wearing it like the letter A. I'm not, I'm not into that, um, no scarlet letters, although they're worn by so many people all the time. It's we really have an incredible hate for ourselves as a people. That's where it comes from. You, you don't, you're not going to forgive yourself. We're so hard on ourselves. So we played that quote before, but we definitely thought it was relevant here. You want to read this quote from the Little Earthquake songbook, David? I do. And this is from the winter pages, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Summoned to the piano, this Russian music box round played me over and over until I was wrapped in a blanket with the memory of cinnamon apples on my tongue and boys that didn't wee. We went back to where I felt no time. It was all happening again, presently. Okay, so we're starting to get into some themes of the song. What do you think she? What do you think this has to do with winter, and why does it appear in the winter pages? There's definitely a sense of nostalgia and childhood in this song, mm-hmm. for sure, particularly around a specific season. So I love the idea of cinnamon apples being referenced here, and I do love that with a lot of the little earthquake songs, particularly in the song book, she sort of paints a picture of the songs calling her and presenting themselves to her unexpectedly. And maybe that's kind of always her experience, but it's very vivid here. And I feel like this was certainly a profound moment in her creativity where she'd sort of open the door, maybe even use those words and all these songs were showing up and she almost couldn't get them down quickly enough. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what I take from this. Do you think there's a thematic element of boys that didn't we? In here, W-E, like boys that wouldn't go, wouldn't be tied to a couple. Is that what she means? Or boys that wouldn't we, quote unquote. I think so. And because this song is rooted in childhood, I think if anything, she's looking at high school age type relationships where they're kind of immature and people aren't quite willing to give you what you want or what you need. Sometimes that doesn't change. But particularly here, I think these are very young relationships where maybe all you want is to be called a we or feel like you're part of a we and you can't even get that. What do you think? Well, why do you think this appears right after Precious Things? What's the journey there? It definitely feels like a breath. To me, it's always felt like the decision was more about sequencing and kind of the experience of the music as opposed to thematically. Mm -hmm. Or like story-wise. Right. Just like a sonic choice. Right. But it does seem like kind of 
a respite, if you will, from precious things in that moment with the father and it's comforting. The song is comforting. The dialogue is comforting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think maybe it's a sonic choice. mm -hmm. Um, It definitely feels like with the attack on precious things and how we end with that growl, you know, that it's nice to come to a place of comfort and warmth. And it just sounds good coming after that song. Mm -hmm. The opening notes of winter sound good coming after precious things. I agree. But I'm curious about, I'm curious if we'll get, we can get back to this boys that didn't we, as we explore the themes in the song, because I wonder where the current couple is. Cause she says, boys that didn't we, we went back to where I felt no time. It was all happening again presently. So there's boys that wouldn't or aren't wanting to couple in the present time. And that's taking her back to the past and the boys that wouldn't we back then. I think a thread throughout Tori's work, even starting here at Little Earthquakes, has been seeking approval through men or Mm -hmm. relationships in Mm -hmm. your life Mm -hmm. and not getting that. Or even if you do get a version of it, that's still not enough if you don't have that for yourself. Right. So I feel like that's where we are here. She's not getting it from other men, other relationships, and she is getting it from her father. But he's saying, when you're going to love you as much as I do, like even though I'm getting that, it's still not enough because I don't believe it. I love the idea that she's seeking her father's advice as sort of a comfort, or he's unsolicited maybe giving it to her like, you don't need these men to love you. When are you going to love you? Mm -hmm. I like that perspective on it. And I'm fascinated by this, and I think this will continue to reveal itself as we get into the song and read more quotes maybe, but for as difficult as Tori's relationship with, I don't want to say her parents, specifically her father and her religious upbringing has been, she has always spoken about him with great affection. Mm -hmm. Is it storytellers when she's saying like, I really do, I really do love my dad. Right. Maybe it's Father Lucifer. Is that what she's saying? Yeah. And it's so authentic and heartfelt and you can feel the love there. But there's also all these other stories she tells about how challenging things were and how kind of at odds they were in their beliefs and everything. So Mm -hmm. I love that even from the get go, this song held that great love she had for him, despite all the other challenges. That there's a song that reflects their her thoughts on him Mm -hmm. on this first album. Mm -hmm. I agree. Even though she talks about the challenges that they had while she was growing up it's always seemed to me that they were super close he's her publisher the fact that he took her to bars at 13 i think really had an impact on her yeah to respect him in a way like he would do anything for me including go into these places so i've always i've always got that they were very close Here's a quote from The Drum Media in Australia on May 19th, 1992. Tori says, you have to remember when all your life you've done one thing, which I did, and that's play. Then when you don't do anything and you're 12 years old and you're growing from a girl into that puberty stage, all your confidence is gone. So my father was very concerned about me and we were having incredible fights. I mean, just ferocious. And then there was this religious upbringing going on that whole time. I wanted to be approved. You don't want to be an outcast. You don't want to be thought of as disrespected. It was weird being really rebellious and then being completely accommodating such strange opposites. What do you think about that? There's more quote there, but we'll get into the second half in a minute. This kind of goes to what you were saying, the struggles that they had. Yeah, I relate to that. And that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about your parents always being your parents, even though you can have a really strong sense of who you are 
and be fighting for that tooth and nail, you still want, I still want, wanted approval from my parents and could hold space for their perspective, Mm -hmm. I guess, and what they wanted for me, whether it was misguided or not. And I think that's what's happening here. Right. Amos recalls the influence of her father in the song Winter when he asks her, when are you going to love you as much as I do? An intense, damagingly free conversationalist with a sensual humor to balance her Amos breathes out a thought. She breathes out a thought, David. Hmm. (sighs) My father, yeah, my dad, is an interesting one. I think a lot of daughters and fathers have this relationship. Not all, but a lot of daughters have a real special thing for their dad. And my dad is like that. I always wanted to achieve whatever he wanted me to because I wanted to please him. And he was a real super achiever, my father. He's still alive, but things have changed. I think when you get older and you move out and you get your own life, then you're not around them all the time. So it doesn't affect you as much as when you're growing up. Mm. That's the stage I'm at. (laughs) (laughs) I finally have moved out of my parents' home. Congratulations. Whatever. How does that feel? Feels wild and new. (laughs) So that basically goes to what you were saying. Always wanting their approval on some level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't feel that. I feel like my dad has been such a constant source of... Me and my dad have had our problems, don't get me wrong. But he's always been such a good guy and constantly there. I never felt like I wasn't going to get his approval. So I wasn't really working for it too much. I felt like everything I did was approved. (laughs) Want to read this quote from the Network 40 on July 1992? Little Earthquake speaks of many childhood experiences, mostly nervous and frustrating. But she tells of them with so much longing, you get the idea she'd like to do it all over again. No way, she corrects. Be it fear of the past or the newfound adult freedom she's enjoying, she'll stay grown up. I wouldn't go back. But I do hang out with my child now. It doesn't go away just because we grow up. The little girl is the one who plays the piano. She gets help but she's the one who learned how to do it and taught all of us. Oh, wow. I like the way she said that. That even when she's playing, there's like, it's like another side of her. Mm -hmm. I'm a little taken aback by her reference to this collective us. I think particularly at this point in her career, she liked to talk about all the different sides of her personality and that Mm -hmm. there was like a a cadre of Sybils in there with her. And maybe that was true at the time, but that sort of narrative changed after this point, I think. So... Whatever she was working through, maybe she resolved some of that. Well, I'd be very interested to have a discussion on that idea, this splitting of the self idea in relation to this album. And Paul Roy, actually, Paul Roy Taylor, who's a friend of ours, for those who don't know, he's actually requested to be on the Little Earthquakes episode to talk about that very topic. Because there's a lot of markers that I'm not saying necessarily that Tori's dealing with dissociative identity disorder, but there's a lot of markers here too, where people, they do split. They do have different sides of themselves that they attribute to certain characteristics or qualities or traits. And her language here is right in line with that Mm -hmm. in some ways. And then again, when we get to Strange Little Girls, and again, when we get to American Doll Posse, it's very prevalent in the 2007 era. Even when she would talk in interviews about how when the girls take stage, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's very dissociated from herself. And it's interesting to me, simply because she's a performer, you know, you... On some level, you have to dissociate. If you're the rock star and then your mom, there's a lot of, when you're a public figure, I Mm -hmm. think, a lot of compartmentalizing that you have to do. I don't think it's anything more than that, but Paul Roy wanted to talk a little bit about that topic when we get there. I think that will be fascinating. And you're right, compartmentalization is a key word, I think. And there's always been a sense of division with Tori and her work. And I mean, it goes back to marrying those Marys. And we Mm -hmm. kind of 
joke about it because it's referenced so often, but I think that's key to her mission as an artist and a person. And that's always been very challenging for her and that from a young age, these sort of warring aspects of self were forced to be at odds and she's been trying to reintegrate them. Not, like you said, in a sense that she has disassociative personality disorder or anything quite that extreme, but that to survive as a lot of us Or even to write or thrive as an artist. Mm -hmm. You know, and also what's interesting to me is how she changes her name from Myra Ellen to Tori. Okay, this side of me is the person and that side of me is the performer. And I've spoken to people who've changed their name. It seemed to me that they were trying to get away from something or just sever ties with the past. And I don't feel that way about Tori. And again, I could be totally wrong, but I feel like she just never thought that it was quite right. right. Like it didn't feel like her wasn't sexy well (laughs) mom it's not sexy well it isn't it's not but don't tell myra ellen degeneres (laughs) but it just wasn't the right fit for her and her parents i think it's adorable they've kind of embraced it but to hear her tell it anyway her dad calls her tori ellen right so and we've heard him sing happy birthday tori ellen Yeah. <laughs> this is a quote from Take to the Sky fanzine. Guess what issue, David? Oh my God, I hope it's three. It's three. Uh, Tori says, I've got some stuff that I didn't do in my life or change in my life, but I have the ability to change the way I think, the way I see myself. So what if my father saw me in a certain way and I'm not this or I'm not that? I can choose to see myself as enough and not pass on to my kid that experience of you need to be a ballerina and you need to be this because I didn't do it. It's amazing to me how this is getting passed down. The same stuff, the same behavior. It's just in different clothes and a little different approach. I wonder if she's trying to say there that maybe there was a lot of pressure from her parents. to You have to be a concert pianist. You've gotten your scholarship. You have to do this. And not only is she feeling it from the school, and not only is she feeling religious pressure from her family, but she's also feeling pressure to be this prodigy thing. It's starting to open up to me. And I know that she's saying, she's always said that she felt a lot of pressure, but it's, I'm starting to realize they're passing this idea to her, like you have to do this. And she's feeling it at school and she's feeling it at the conservatory and she's feeling it at home and she's feeling it on Sundays at church. Of course it sticks with you. Of course those formative years stick with you. Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot of people have that experience period, but Tori had a gift that was undeniable. Mm -hmm. It's not like we want you to be this thing. Mm -hmm. She sort of came into the world with this crazy gift and musical ability. So it's like what... There's all this pressure on me to make sure that I do something with it, I Mm -hmm. guess, and that I don't squander it. Mm -hmm. So what is the best use of this? There are probably a lot of different people with a lot of different opinions on what that means. So that's a lot for anyone. You want to reenact this scene from Cream Magazine in March 1994? I love a reenactment. It'll be like Unsolved Mysteries. I'll be the Okay. No, you be Tori. I'll be the interviewer. Okay. I think Grandma was looking for what I'm looking for, which is wholeness. But her way of going about it was to try to make other people acknowledge their sin and take out parts of themselves that she thought were sinful to get to God. What I want to get to is every part of myself, because God goddess is in everything that makes me up. And I don't believe for one minute that we can't heal ourselves. We can. Jesus even said that. Oh, I'd like to believe you. Man, this poor interviewer, he's having a moment. Way to make it about me. (laughs) I'd like to believe you. I'd like to believe you. Well, it's believing in you. Exactly. That was the central question of your song, Winter, wasn't it? Yes. 
So have you answered that question satisfactorily? Check it out. On winter, the father sang to me, when you're going to make up your mind, when you're going to love you as much as I do. And in Pretty Good Year, on the new album, I sing to the boyfriend, what's it going to take till my baby's all right? There's no self-pity in the song, and yet it's a tragedy because I can't make him love himself. I can't do it. No matter how much I beat it into him, I can't do it for him. Funny how the tables have turned, isn't it? What do you think about what she says? First of all, I'd like to say how, how tremendously gracious she is to her grandmother there. Because she always on stage was like, well, I hated my grandmother. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was just like a buzz phrase. Right. You know, she would stop playing. The audience would cheer for whatever yes. song she had just finished. I hated my grandmother. It's a funny soundbite. Yeah. She loved virgins. And I was five and I was, I was like, like, I no. want to marry Jim Morrison. Yeah. So it was a funny soundbite. But here she's incredibly gracious by saying what she says about she and her grandmother were both looking for the same thing, mm-hmm. which is wholeness. wholeness. They were just going about it in different ways. It's nice that she has that forgiveness or has that empathy to see that at the heart of it, she was just trying to be whole mm-hmm. in the eyes of God for the grandmother. Mm-hmm. I like to start there. I love that. I don't consider <laughs> we know that Pretty Good Year is arguably not a sequel to anything, certainly not Ode to the Banana King, but that there is a connection to winter here. And that you go from needing approval for oneself and then taking that into a romantic relationship where no matter what you give to the other person, unless they're whole and complete or working towards that sense of wholeness, nothing you do will ever be enough for them. And that they kind of have to take that journey on their own. I don't know. I like that connection between the two songs. I think that's really important. I agree. Also from this article, a quote from Doug Morris shows that we have Winter to thank for finally getting him to fall in love with the album. Doug Morris says, quote, I'll be very honest with you. He says with no hesitation. I basically gave her a hard time. When she brought me Little Earthquakes, I didn't get into it on the first listen. It was very quiet. Very introspective. And for the life of me, I had no idea how we could possibly break this artist. Well, they've already broken her. She was putting herself back together. I was actually kind of annoyed because it had been a very expensive album to make. So annoyed. God, Doug. It's been my experience that when you encounter a unique artist, it can take a while to get it. After listening a lot, I finally got it. Thank God. Winter hooked me at first, and the more I listened to it, the more I fell in love with it. But while I'm slowly falling in love with it, she's sitting in her apartment in L.A., where all the furniture was made of this soft plastic that would take the form of your body when you sat on it, thinking that I don't like this record at all. So I called her up and I said, I don't know how to tell you this, but I've fallen in love with your record. Tori collapsed under her melting pile of Ikea furniture, I guess. <laughs> Isn't it funny that he's like, it looks like furniture and it it wasn't it wasn't quite furniture. I know, right? It's like made out of this thin wood and plastic. <laughs> Imagine being that rich that you're like, that looks like a chair, but is is it a chair? God Doug Morris. You know, I really feel for Tori. Give Tori a break, for Christ's sake. They what did. does she have to prove? He did. Well, but he like begrudgingly tells her that he likes her album. He's like, well, I hardly want to give you the satisfaction, but I guess you could say I've fallen, whatever, love, who knows, I've fallen <laughs> in love with your album. I mean, I, don't I think guess. That's, I don't think that's how he said it. Ugh. Yeah. I'm picturing someone looking me in the eye and saying that. I yeah. don't know how to tell you this. But, but I've, I've fallen, fallen in, in love, love with, with everything that you do well, and I see you, and... Let's go on this journey together. Imagine that moment. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
Imagine that moment. You kind of robbed me of it a little bit, but that's okay. I see what you're saying. Okay. You want to read this from Time Out on December 20th, 1995? Yes. According to Tori Amos, whose entire musical upbringing in North Carolina evolved somewhere between the encouragement of her Methodist minister father and her Cherokee mother, those initial forays into the rock world were a product of misplaced guilt and low self-esteem. My father wanted to be James Dean, or a doctor, but his parents were both ministers who grew up in deliverance territory. He had four brothers, but my grandparents decided that he had to be the minister. Nothing he ever did would be enough for them. My grandmother would write him letters criticizing his sermons. She just wanted him to be Billy Graham or something. My thing has always been to show that I'm worthy. To your father? Yeah, to someone who could never do enough either. Okay, so he never became successful in the eyes of his mother, but come on, Dad. Put your thigh-length boots on. Let's rock and show Grandma. But I got shot down in flames. Imagine Edison in thigh-high, snakeskin boots. But more importantly, imagine Edison holding that sword. I'm doing it now. With his hair, like his <laughs> white hair. <teased>. Yes. <laughs> I think we can all take a moment to imagine that. If you don't treat me better. If you don't treat me better, Tori Ellen. I'll just run away. <laughs> This is a quote from Making Music, January 1996. <laughs> she says, horses is part two of winter. Is it though? The record begins with the horses from winter coming back to take me on this journey. And we ride and we go find the demons. I love that. And yes, I believe her. Okay. The horses from your childhood taking her into this underworld to show her the truth. And it's got to be something from your childhood to take you down into that other No, world. you're right. I get it. You know, it's got to be something safe and like something that you trust. Like a, a hand, a friend, a horse that you know and love. Something that you trust to make you examine this horrible part of yourself that she was examining on that record. Mm. You want to read this quote from B-Side Magazine, May, June 1996? Isn't that your favorite issue? The record starts off with the horses from winter taking us and we ride. Here she's talking about Pele. Going into the program of the beauty queen. She's a beauty queen and that's not enough because it never is. The idea that beauty is our answer when we are four years old. Oh, isn't she pretty? That's the first thing that you hear. So it's going after those programs of the feminine, going after them. That's more about Pele, but it's also... Just a reference to the horses taking her on a journey. Mm -hmm. These horses, you can count on these horses. Let's play some audio. You want to play some audio content? Finally. Here's a bit from Behind the Music. Tori left Peabody at age 11, but she continued to play piano up to eight hours a day. When she turned 13, her dad had an inspiration. Tori, would you um, work if I were to get you a job downtown in music? She had not turned uh, 14 then. She jumped up and down and screamed and said, Daddy, would you? Tori got her first job at a club called Henry's, a bar with a gay clientele. As Tori tickled the ivories each night, her parents sat nearby to chaperone. It turned out to be an educational experience for the whole family. I had never uh, been in a lounge she had, she had before that time. It was not an easy life, situation think. for me. Reverend Amos, her father, of course, would come in a clerical collar and sit there in the lounge in the evenings. He was always preaching the word of Tori Amos at the time. He caught a lot of flack from the parish when he took me down there, a lot. He's a real mixture of Billy Graham and James Dean. He sometimes will be walking, and I'll just say, you know, I'm glad I met that side of you. And he'll, he'll smile and say, 
Me too. <laughs> Here's a bit from VIP, April 22nd, 1998. I just want to speak a little bit about your early life because we mentioned in the introduction that your father was a preacher and I know he encouraged you a great deal. He was a big fan of yours and he helped you, didn't, didn't he, with his sort of tenacity, convincing you that you had the talent. He's an incredible character because um, I really think he wanted to be James Dean. In my heart, I believe that. And uh, he had a wicked mother. You can tell my feelings about her. She's uh -huh. dead, so I can say what I want. <laughs> and she, um, she and I never got along. We really were enemies since I was tiny, since I had diapers, so I didn't like her. And she, I think she really guilted him into being a preacher. Mm -hmm. And although he was a very good preacher, I think his heart was in other things, although he wouldn't admit it till much later. Do you think his heart was in, in music as well and perhaps his mother never allowed him to express himself? Well, he's tone deaf, my father. I mean, the one thing about being in church is he has a, he would have a microphone right by his, you know, his um, dog collar, oh, as they, yeah. you call it here. And all of a sudden, during oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing, you would hear him tone deaf singing louder than anybody else because he loved to sing so much, but he would just forget his mic was on. And, uh, Tori talks about winter again when she talks about choosing the songs for Tales of a Librarian. From Rolling Stone, September 5th, 2003, according to Amos, the hardest part was not selecting which songs from her oeuvre would make the cut, but rather finding the original mixes. She says, tracking down some of these tapes was an awesome task. I think they might have been in somebody's dorm room somewhere. I'm serious, though. The libraries that were supposed to be taking care of the masters were not intact, so we had people chasing down masters all over the world. We found some in, you'd be amazed, in like the playroom of their house. It's like, what's Winter doing there? Mm. Let's talk about this. Since this quote, this quote was in 2003, where Antoriumus is talking about finding the masters for her entire catalog, right? Which you presume she's doing in 0203 to put together librarian. Yes. Since then, in the last few months, we have heard that there was a huge tape room fire at Warner Brothers in 2008 that they didn't even tell the artists that some of their entire catalogs had been destroyed. Cheryl Crow, for example, had her entire catalog destroyed. And that's not only the masters of her albums, that's the B-sides, that's the alternate mixes, that's the alternate takes, that's every single thing that she had done on her records or in the sessions for the records destroyed gone forever do you think that tori saved inadvertently or inexplicably saved her own catalog by doing these compilations like by actually tracking down these tapes back before the fires what would we have done if her catalog had been lost in that fire it would have been horrible i do and i'm not sure like what the relationship was that was a universal music fire right. like where tori's masters were they were all kind of scattered to the right. four corners of the earth but it's interesting that she had not done any kind of career retrospective or looking back up until this point and this mm -hmm. was her first attempt to collect all of that mm -hmm. and even kind of shortly after the fact in, in the grand scheme of things 10 years is not that long right it was still hard for her to track down yeah all that stuff so i can only imagine they absolutely would have been lost one way or the other if any more time had been allowed to pass yeah. i think so i'm hoping she got them all and that's digitized she them did. they said they made first thing we did was make copies of okay. everything <laughs> Thank goodness. Thank God. Because so someone loses all the masters. That's one thing. But when Cheryl Crow was like, no, it's not just the masters of the album. It's the B-sides. It's the alternate takes. It's the things that we jammed right before we started recording or right before we, you know, cut into the recording. It's traumatic. Imagine having your entire artistic history erased. Mm -hmm. 
So thank God she was able to put together. You know what? I might have given it 4.5 stars earlier because she left off sneeze. I give it five stars just for existing. <laughs> Tales of Librarian, you win. God, I hope I get five stars just for existing. <laughs> you want to read this quote from the Los Angeles Times, September 21st, 2003, back during the toll days? Tori has gone back to the original master tapes on all the tracks and in some cases done some rather significant revisions. To her thinking, correcting some decisions that were made at the time. Someone said, bury the strings in winter because it won't be commercial. And now I'm trying to preserve what was on tape. Not necessarily what got released because of a decision that was made in 20 seconds at the time. That's interesting. When she puts it like that, that decision was made in 20 seconds and I've always regretted it. Mm. So now we're going to bring, we're going to boost up the strings. Anything that, you know, when you have a reconditioning to think that her saying that decision was made in 20 seconds, let's bring up the background vocals of Cornfleet Girl. We think like, oh no, this is the way we've always heard the song. We've always known the song. Don't mess with it. But she's like, I've always hated that decision, and now I get a chance to redo it, right? I don't know. I don't believe that any of these decisions were made in 20 seconds. Perhaps that was true of Winter when she had less control, but that doesn't explain why she went back to Spark and completely tore it down and rebuilt it. One could argue that she obviously had complete control over that song and was making the decisions she wanted to make at the time. Sometimes well, I just think she can't help herself. Like, well, maybe it could be better. Here's the thing about being a director. When the play opens, your work is done. That's it. You're working towards a deadline. Same thing when you're making a movie. You're working towards a deadline. It's always going to be this one moment in time, and that's maybe why I don't like when people remaster or recondition or do different takes and things like that but you'll always have it you'll always have original spark right so have some fun play girl <laughs> you got all your master tapes thank god i guess i i guess we'll, we'll do a 20-year retrospective yes. of spark the way it was what's in hard 2018. For, i'm all for alternate takes or different interpretations or whatever you want to call it where I get hung up is when something is presented to me as this is now the best version. This is the way it always wanted to be. And it's like, mm, was it though? Can you really say that? Taste change. You're a different person than you were. I don't know. If you can revisit something from that long ago and say, oh yeah, no, this, this, this is what I meant to say. I don't think she's ever been like, this is the definitive version. I think she's more said, you'll always have that. You have that. Let's do something different. She's Lucasing us. What does that mean? She's George Lucasing us. I don't know what that means. He went back and recut Star Wars, and then he's like, oh, well, if I'd had this technology or had this freedom at the time, this is what I would have done. It's like, okay, fine. This is from Piece by Piece in 2005. Her first book, it's always shifting. When I sing Winter Now, I don't necessarily get the same pictures I did on the last tour, or the tour before, or the tour before, or the tour before. When I was writing that song, I was considering a relationship between a girl and her father or a grandfather or any male who held that space, because as we know, some fathers don't hold that space. My perspective isn't always about a girl and her father, though. When are you going to make up your mind? When are you going to love you as much as I do? There was a moment for me when those lyrics were referencing Kevin Aqua, especially when he died. That was my need. The song allows me the space to have my perception of it as I go through my changes, and yet I still hold the integrity of a girl and her father when that song enters my body in live performance. But I, as Tori, will feel what I feel and see the pictures that I see, and the songs have always allowed me that as long as I retain their DNA integrity. She goes on to say, It can even come back to parenting. I will do something, say something to Natasha, and I'll just realize I've created a space that I did not want to create for her to walk into. Say she was very naughty, and I said something like, and I'm cringing as I write this, because you did this, this is why mommy's going to London this weekend. <gasps> can you imagine? I can. Because you did this, I won't play hotel solo. <laughs> 
So then she thinks that when mommy leaves, it's because she's naughty. I saw that happen once, and it was as if a thousand prisms were shattered. I began to see in my own being how the tape plays, what I hear when somebody makes a rhetorical move like that. I did something that I'm going to have to deal with and work with now a lot, whenever I leave her. So when I sing winter, sometimes now I see a girl walking over that hill with a mommy, yet the pictures can still be of my papa and my father. It's not always an either-or when I'm singing a song live. I can liken it much more to snapshots or Polaroids that I can flip through in a book, that tug and pull on my emotions with every turn of a phrase. But now other experiences affect me when I sing, when you're going to make up your mind, when you're going to love you as much as I do. So just about how it's always evolving and it's not necessarily keeping the same original images, but that's kind of like where she started from. That's like the groundwork. But there's other things in her life. She's grown up and moved on that have filled in the space. Mm-hmm. And it's like a Polaroid book. And now I would imagine sometimes it's both. Sometimes when she sings it, she's the parent. Right. And sometimes she's still the child, maybe. Yeah. Here's a quote from Rollingstone.com, 18th of December, 2009. The white horses are your dreams. Oh, The white horses are your dreams. That doesn't really say it. Opportunities, roads that you thought you would go down and haven't experienced, and all those potential experiences are gone now. Those doors are closed. And imagination, the belief that your imagination can take you to places, the magical world having gone from your world, which to me there's nothing more painful than that, when you can't access your magical world. There was a moment when I thought I was too young to not be able to access that anymore, but I've noticed over the years that a lot of teenagers feel locked out of that world. They don't know how to get back anymore because in trying to become an adult, you feel like you have to circumcise the magical world. That's interesting about the white horses and being a metaphor for dreams, opportunities, that are gone. You're bumming me out, Tori. And Eve. <laughs> Those doors are closed. Those doors are closed now. Those white horses are gone. Ugh. Want to read this quote from In the Studio by Jake Brown? A solid book. I didn't write one note or one word to please people. I didn't do something to have a hit record. I'm not seduced by the idea of a hit record. If it happens, it happens in its own time. I'm into making records that know who they are and make really clear choices. Tori's father felt the album was about the structure of a culture that has encrusted your soul to where you are, not who you should be. There's no ephemeral writing from Tori. It's all out of experience or meaning. As a philosopher and a theologian, I think there's a lot of great wisdom about life in her songs. So it's interesting that Tori finds great wisdom in Tosh now, and Edison found great wisdom in Tori. It's nice. I agree, and I think it takes a generous parent to get to a point where they realize maybe their child has something to teach them mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Jumping ahead a little, you want to read this from Refinery29, April 14th, 2015. In terms of these reissues, what are you excited about in terms of new listeners? What's exciting about this re-release? Well, stories over the years from other generations have affected me. Of people confronting their demons or making a change in their life and deciding what kind of person they want to be. Not who their family wants them to be or their friends want them to be, but who they feel they really are. These are the albums about individuating and not just being the person my parents wanted me to be and my friends wanted me to be or falling into that role but about blowing that up throwing a grenade at that then saying that's not who i am and i might be letting people down because i don't fit into that character in this story so these records were my time to find out who that person was and i would say during the 90s that's what those records were about i can see her saying that i can see her these songs being about blowing up who you were who you thought you should be and blowing that up and saying this is who i am do you think they resonated now with new listeners as they did back then or do you think they would resonate now with new listeners for that idea 
I think that is a great way of summarizing everything it feels like to be a teenager, right? Right. Finding out who you are, not wanting to give in to the expectations of your parents or whoever. And it seems kind of quaint, I guess, but that's an experience I think we all relate to. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely believe that if I had not had a Tory and probably a few other key people, but mostly Tory... I might not have survived that phase of my life intact with the sense of self that I had and my commitment to that. So that's what I think. This is from the Earthquakes reissued liner notes. She says, when I first wrote Winter, there was a picture of my mother's father, Papa, and then a picture of my father in the snow in my mind. Years later, I saw my daughter, Tosh, and her father running in the snow, and I would sing that song, and there would be that film running of her putting her hand in her father's glove. I wasn't the little girl anymore, but I was. Both those films were running as I was playing it. Say somebody tells me about Winter, and then I play it live that night, 20 years later, because they've given me another extension of it. There is yet another film running, so I don't see these songs as old stuff for me because they are evolving and I'll learn from them. All of the songs take on extended meaning and when I hear from other people about their experience with them, they become current with me and I walk with them today. I don't just walk with them as they were in 1991 or 1992. That goes back to what we were saying earlier about how there's simultaneous things running like a Polaroid book. Mm -hmm. And I feel that to be true. I think we're so fortunate that Tori as an artist, when we go see her live, we're not like, oh, here we go. She's breaking out winter. She's always, I, f I just feel the truth in these words, that she's always right. kind of present in that moment, having an experience with it. And when she plays it, it's very intentional. Mm -hmm. So I just think that's incredible. And she's never tuned out. Mm -mm. Or, yeah. This is from NPR The Record, October 17th, 2012. NPR says, Now that you have gold dust, this wonderful collection of songs from throughout your career, I wonder what are the lines you enjoy singing the most from your body of work. And Tori says, I guess it's the line from Winter. When you're going to make up your mind, when you're going to love you as much as I do. I think that one. That's her favorite line to sing. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Speaking of favorite lines, should we get into the line by line? Let's do it. Let's do it. Snow can weigh a fork on my mittens. Wipe my nose. Get my new boots on. This is such a portrait of childhood, and you can just see a little girl getting ready to go out and play in the snow. There's something about wiping my nose that puts her at, like, what, five years old, four years old? Very young. Mm -hmm. I get a little warm in my heart when I think of winter. I love that sense of nostalgia, and I feel that way, too, about the seasons, the holidays, and I think that's all kind of captured here. Mm -hmm. And I'm taken back to, to when, I think, around the time Boys for Pele was coming out, Tori said, I'm a winter girl. When asked why her albums at that point always came out in January, and she said she was a winter girl. So I always think about that, too. I'm a winter girl. Mm -hmm. I put my hand in my father's clothes. There's something so comforting about putting your hand or the image of putting a small hand inside a bigger hand's grasp, you know, being protected, feeling safe. Mm -hmm. From Salon on April 11th, 2015, Elizabeth Gold says, in winter from Little Earthquakes, you sing, I put my hand in my father's glove. When I was in college, that song might have made me cry, feeling post-adolescently sentimental about my own dad. Now as a mother, my emotions are even more powerful because I think of how my daughter will grow up in a way. Did you ever imagine that your songs would be able to ride generations? And Tori says, my mother would say, until you're a mom, you won't understand love. I'd roll my eyes when I heard that, but you and I know she's right. When I wrote Winter, I was imagining my father and my grandfather. Now the film is watching my 
daughter with her dad. Both of the films live when I'm performing and hearing that winter now. I can't be the person I was when I wrote the older songs. For visual artists like Lucy and Freud, as they aged, their work was still valid because they were exploring different issues. As a woman getting older, having a teenage daughter forces me to be honest with where I am and what I'm experiencing. And Tosh has her own take on my songs. That's interesting. That's back to what we were saying about different movies running, different tapes. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear Tosh's take on Tori's music. I would. Maybe we could get her Let's on, get her on the show. Oh my God. Email her. <laughs> Oliver, send her an email. I run off where the drifts get deeper. Sleeping beauty that trips me with a does that mean there's definitely a sense of fairy tale here obviously sleeping beauty is a fairy tale character but tori has said parts of the song are about dreams that never came to fruition or doors that were closed so maybe there's some kind of happy ending here that was never meant to be how so what does trips me with a frown mean almost like not so fast you think things are going to work out for you a certain way but oh i see i hear a voice you must learn to stand up I love that line. That line to me is solid. It's like a father raising his child. And maybe if Sleeping Beauty has tripped her with a frown and she's fallen and stumbled on her path, he's encouraging her, you got to get up. You got to stand up for yourself. Like Mm -hmm. I can't be there to pick you up. Being tripped with a frown is just a stumbling block in life. Like someone said that you couldn't do something. Again, a pretty girl, Sleeping Beauty. We talked about pretty girls and precious things. I'm taking back to that quote we read earlier too about Tori sort of mourning the loss of access to magic or the fantasy world of childhood. And I feel like that's maybe happening here a little bit too. There's a maturing process happening here where she's letting go of the fantasy and fairy tales of childhood. And her father is saying, you know, the most important thing you can do right now is learn how to stand up for yourself because you're not always going to have your parent. You're going to have to be that for yourself or maybe someone else. I agree with that. I think that you're right when you bring back that quote about accessing magic. I feel like that's definitely in here. Losing that access to it. He says, when you gonna make up your mind? When you gonna love you as much as I do? That's Tori's favorite line to sing of her entire catalog. He says, when you gonna make up your mind? What does that mean to you? She's conflicted about something. She has a decision to make. What do you think that is? What are you gonna do? Who are you gonna be? Who are you going to be? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? She's back and forth at this point, trying all kinds of different things, kind of like a pinball. Mm-hmm. You want me to write dance music? I'll write dance music. You want me to be rock? I'll write, ro- I'll write rock. You want me to do jingles? I'll do jingles. You want me to be an actress? Okay. Throw me that trial by jury script. <laughs> yeah. So when are you going to make up your mind and know that you are enough? Mm. When you're going to settle, not settle, like settle for less, but relax and just be yourself. When are you going to make up your mind? When are you going to see yourself the way that I see you? Yeah. And isn't that what we all want to hear from someone, right? Yes. Not certain people. Well. (laughs) Never, I hope. I love that line, when are you going to love you as much as I do? I love that line because it feels like unconditional love and like you can do no wrong that only a parent really can say. When we've discussed other songs, we've sort of pinpointed moments that we felt were ripped from real conversations or were real pieces of dialogue. Do you think Tori's father or grandfather maybe actually spoke these words to her? I do feel that. Not maybe when you're going to make up your mind, but when you're going to love you as much as I do, I think is definitely something I can hear Edison saying, or I would say Edison. 
mm-hmm. or some parental figure in her life because they had such love for her. Every time they talk about her, even in her wild days, her parents spoke with such a gleam in their eye, you know? It seems like they would be proud of her no matter what she did. I think so too. And I love, that's such a great way to describe it. As buttoned up as they were, or maybe are, they kind of loved that rebellion that she had. And you could tell that they wish they had a little bit more of that or that they'd Themselves? been sort of courageous enough to follow it yeah. the way she had. Yeah. Whenever she'd sort of trigger them, you can imagine them being like, oh, that's sacrilege. or That's so wrong. But sort of grinning at the same time as they were saying it. I don't know. And certainly they loosened up as the years went on. Yeah. As everyone does. When you're gonna make up your What do you think she means they're going to change so fast? Childhood falls away so quickly and you become an adult and you have to take on all these responsibilities and figure out who you are, who you want to be. I would endorse that. Except for I would say childhood falls away so quickly and you have to love yourself now because things will change in the future. You have to have that strong foundation of loving yourself. Mm. When you're going to make up your mind and love yourself as much as I do because there's no telling what's going to happen. So you have to start with that foundation of self-acceptance and you have to start with that core because whatever changes is going to change. And if you have that, you can weather those changes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. said that white horses are dreams the dreams or the opportunities that never happened so all the white horses being in bed they're just sleeping they're gone not gone to me there's still the potential there like we're at the beginning here mm-hmm. we're still in childhood and we haven't lost all of that mm-hmm. yet mm-hmm. they're dreaming like they're literally dreaming in maybe. bed yeah they're in bed So he says, I'll tell you that I always, that I'll always want you near. That's a quote from him. And he's saying that she's saying that things change, my dear. Or she's saying, I tell you that I'll always want you near. Tori is saying, I'll always want you near. Tori is saying, I tell you that I'll always want you near. Yes. And, you're, and he, he's saying, well, things change, my dear. My dear. <laughs> How cruel. <laughs> That's not everyone's experience, but I think, of course, when you're a kid, you can't imagine that there will ever be anyone as important in your life as your parents, and that you'll always want to be close to them. And then when you become a teenager, you have that breaking away where they're your enemy in some respects. And then a lot of us come back to that as adults and sort of reestablish that relationship and that closeness. So you think this song follows the journey of life? Yes. The cycle of life? Mm Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So then we're going into adolescence here. For sure. Yeah. Because boys get discovered. Yeah, exactly. Here we go. Boys get discovered as winter melts. When did you first discover boys, Eve? In some ways, I was really naive when it came to sex and things like that. But in other ways, I had been awoken early as far as the knowledge that I was gay or that I didn't feel like the other boys because I had a ton of male cousins. And they were always so like, let's play ball, let's do this, let's do that. And none of that ever interested me. I was never in the street playing football or whatever they were playing. I never wanted to go hiking and like play with sticks and set things on fire. That was never me. So I was always hanging out with like the women of the family in the kitchen, you know, I would husk the corn or like do the beans or make the tortillas. So I just always felt more comfortable with women. What was life like on the frontier? Well, it wasn't the frontier, it was New Mexico. And all of those things happened, racism. (laughs) 
So anyway, so I felt like more at home with women. Same. And, and so I, I, well, we all know that their conversations are way more interesting. Come exactly. On. I always knew that I was different. My first crush was probably when I was like 13 or 14. What about you? That's pretty late. Yeah. I was, like I said, I was in all things uh, essentially naive. Mm-hmm. When did you discover boys? Oh man, my first crush was Superman. Really? Way back when. <laughs> Did you ever consummate the relationship? Well, I mean, in my mind, in my <laughs> dreams, I don't know why I felt, because I didn't think, well, not that there was anything wrong with it, but I didn't know that others would perceive that there was. I don't know the words that I used, but I somehow told my sister that I had some sort of unusual feelings towards Superman when I was like four or five. And she told my mom who lost her goddamn mind. So... Anyway, I was pretty upfront from the beginning. So why anyone felt the need to act surprised years later over and over again, I was like, come on, I've been preparing you for this since I almost came out of the womb. I love the idea that this is the marker of adolescence is discovering boys, you know, and like being awakened to that teenage sexuality or that, mm-hmm. that teenage desire. And this is like the next chapter. Boys get discovered as winter melts. But it's true. I mean, the same is true for straight boys, presumably also, right? You know, when you're little kids, you're discovering girls, the boys yeah. are like, ew girls are gross we don't ever want to be around girls and then one day it's like oh wait a minute this is kind of interesting but I, no i guess what i'm saying is that i love the imagery of like she's a child in winter the first time you see this character it's winter time and she's a little girl and as winter is melting and the snow is melting this this young woman is emerging i love that metaphor I, it's uh, it's so overtly sexual i can't even help it yeah the icicle is melting there's that sort of flopping flaccid blossom in the winter video <laughs> so i don't know phallic. phallic yes flowers competing for the sun do you take this to mean like girls competing for the attention of the boys or girls competing for people anyone's attention i've always taken this flowers competing for the sun as girls competing for the attention of the brightest light well, that's interesting. And I've actually never thought about it that way, but it kind of takes me back to those beautiful boys from Precious mm-hmm. Things, like wanting their attention. I've always thought about it as more poetic in my mind, I guess, reaching for the sun, reaching for the potential of who you could be or who you want to be, not attention from some dude, but Oh, well, that's both. interesting. I feel like they both kind of fit the next line, whether it's you're looking for attention from some dude or trying to get to where you want to be or get the light. Years go by and I'm here still waiting. You haven't gotten it. Years have gone by and you still, whether, you, whether it's the attention of the boy or whether it's where you wanted to be, you're still not there. You still don't have it. Years have gone by and you're still waiting. When your life, David, starts if I had to say anything, my life started probably at 15 when I discovered theater that I loved doing theater, right? Like I can pinpoint that as a moment for me with my life, my passion, right? If your life starts at two, of course, by 28, you're like, Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. I'm nothing. I'm over. Yep. This is slaying me because this is one of those moments where I'm like, there's no way one of these songs from Little Earthquakes could possibly resonate with me more now than it did then. <laughs> but I'm like wiping away a tear. I know. I'm still waiting. I'm still withering with where some snowman was. Withering where some snowman was. So like the winter has melted and the snowman was there and things, beautiful things and fun, wonderful things were there. And now there's nothing. I'm just a dirty pile of snow. I am just withering bones, skin and snow bones. How it feels. Mirror, 
And here we go back to the magic. Mirror, mirror on the wall. She's asking, like, where is this magical place that I can go to? Or where is this magical kingdom that mm-hmm. I don't have access to? Yes. Right? Do you mm-hmm. see it that same yeah, way? I do. And nothing comes back from the mirror except for just her dirty old reflection. I can only see myself. Yes. Oh, like, God. And in your version, it's like a dirty stained mirror with flakes on it. Toothpaste splatters. <laughs> just dust. Peeling. Skating around the truth who I am. But I know death. There's something about looking into a mirror and forcing yourself to see the truth or avoiding the truth. She's saying she's skating around the truth of who she is at that moment, right? She's trying to still find the crystal palace. She's looking into the mirror like, where is it? But only sees back not a crystal palace and not something magical, just what she perceives to be a failure, Mm. what she perceives to be the opposite of what she wants to be. There's something truthful about a mirror and the mirror imagery. I love that she brings that in here. And of course, there are other ways to see this lyric. One can't... No, there's not. (laughs) It's so clear in moments like this why young gay men and women identify with Tori the way they do. With a lyric like skating around the truth of who I am, but that ice is getting thin. Is there a more concise way to talk about the sort of coming to terms, coming out process? Ooh, boy. That's weighty. Skating around the truth. It seems foolish to me now, but I've never related skating around the truth who I am as the cause of the thinning ice. Like you're sh- every, of course, every time you skate around the ice, you're shaving down the ice little by little by little by little mm. by little. The ice is getting thin because you've been skating around the truth of who you are for so long. It just makes that seem a little bit sadder to me. I never thought of it as the cause other than the inevitable passage of time. And things are moving oh, and the, forward. And the ice things is are melting moving forward again. No matter what I do, so who am I going to be? And the ice is melting slowly right. because time is passing. Yeah, I can keep skating and pretending like nothing's happening, but sooner or later I'm going to fall through unless I figure this out. Oh God, <laughs> God, it's true. This song resonates so much with me right now. Tori, then at 28, me now at 28. I feel it. Bridge. It's like what you said earlier. 28, in her mind, may as well be 60. It never seemed, disingenuous is not the right word, but it never seemed like, oh, Tori, just wait till you're actually whatever age. Like, she sells it, and you believe her, and it's authentic, and you can feel where it's coming from, even if you don't necessarily relate to exactly what that was. And it seems almost in a way, like, I know this song is deeply personal, but it doesn't seem like she's only singing for herself. And maybe because I related to it on such a personal level, the album, that it felt like she was singing kind of for all of us, the whole thing. Mm. So hair is gray and the fires are burning. Feels universal. There's something about it that feels very call to action. I agree. And maybe... I never really thought about it this way, but in that moment, she's singing for her father too. Yeah. And everything he wanted to be and everything that was expected Uh. of him that he maybe felt like he wasn't able to be or accomplish. Mm -hmm. 
That really makes a lot of sense with that quote, too. There's something about these songs that they, I don't want to say they resolve themselves, but they offer solutions within the songs in so many ways. You're just an empty cage girl if you kill that bird is its solution within the song. It's telling you not to kill the bird. Mm. And here, it feels like so many dreams on the shelf. It feels like this is a call to action, like a way to not solve the problem, but it's calling to action that you've got to find this within yourself. Yeah. There's a piece of these songs that's always a step ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, I kind of see that pitfall mm-hmm. up ahead. So I'm just going to take you by the hand and kind of guide you around yeah. it if you'll pay attention. Yeah, for sure. You say I wanted you to be proud of me. This line has always tripped me up a little bit. The phrasing of it is slightly awkward to me, and I can't exactly tell who's saying what to who. I think I know. I think that's the point. Okay. You don't think? No, I'm sure. But no, tell me, who do you think is saying what to who? Yeah, I think you're right. I think they're saying it to each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that wasn't her intention. What do you think her intention is? Initially, I have to see it as the child saying that to the parent. I wanted you to be proud of me. And is the parent or the father turning around and saying, I wanted that myself? Meaning, I wanted you to be proud of me, too. Not great. Good for you. I always wanted to be proud of you, too. Right, right. (laughs) And that's where I think we get... I mean, the line has tripped me up, too. And it is a little awkward in the phrasing. But I think maybe that is the dynamic between the two characters or between the father and the daughter is that he's not saying, I am proud of you. That's what to me is different. Like where you're saying the phrasing trips you up, to me what trips me up is that she's saying, I always wanted you to be proud of me. And he's not saying, I am proud of you no matter what you do. He's saying, I wanted you to be proud of me. And to me, that's, there's like a power that he's giving her a power back to the child. He's giving the child authority or to be proud of the father. Are they saying that to each other? Or is he saying, I want you to be proud of yourself? Rather than looking to me or anyone else for approval. I think it holds all of those things, really. I always wanted you to be proud of me. And he's saying, I want you to be proud of yourself. Yes. I always wanted you to be proud of me. I want you to be proud of me. You say I wanted you to be proud of me. I always wanted that myself. I think it holds a couple different things, but really what I think she's saying or where we are in this moment is the child saying to the father, I want you to be proud of me. And the father's turning around and saying, but I am proud of you and I want you to feel that for yourself. I think it holds both. What do you think? I think it can. And I think that's why she's chosen the words so carefully and why it's unclear. And the beauty of it is that it does hold all of those things. But I think the real kind of crux of the story is the parent turning to the child and saying, I want you to be as proud of yourself as I am of you, especially because I'm not always going to be here to shore you up. Mm. So you need to do that for yourself. Yes, we figured it out. We solved winter. (laughs) Winter was a riddle. So we're back to the chorus. But do we agree that something's changed here? Well, if they haven't, they're gonna. They're gonna change so fast. I feel like if we've, if you look in the video and the way it's represented in the video, and also hair is gray, if hair is gray is getting us through the middle aged part of life, you know, as your hair turns gray, 
if you're if you're saying that you look at this song as a cyclical journey through life, then hair is gray is the middle age part of the life, right? When your hair goes gray and the fires are burning, then what's left is old age and it feels like something has really slowed down and stopped in the way she says when you gonna make up your mind like that moment Mm -hmm. there's also an aspect of watching those around you age Mm. maybe your parents and Mm -hmm. maybe it's not me or the narrator of the song with the hair turning gray but it's i'm watching that parental figure age and feeling that slipping away makes it even more vital that i am able to do that for myself. What do you think of that? All the white horses have gone ahead. Before they were still in bed. Mm-hmm. Now they've gone ahead. There's a sense of being left behind, right? Not like they've moved onward to bigger and better things, but they've gone ahead without me, almost. Yeah. That's how it makes yeah. me feel. Yeah. Yeah, same. That there's no catching up to those white mm-hmm. horses. I tell you that I'm To me, this ends on such a sad note. You say that things change. I'll always want you near. And you say that things change. And it's a while before we get to the my dear. It just feels like there's a, someone has passed away or there's just a dying of the dream. <laughs> there's, it feels like a great thing has changed. Yeah, and it's there's an ache there to me. And it's not necessarily about death, but it's almost that, I don't want to say prophecy, but that looking forward that was present in the earlier part of the song. And kind of like I was saying, there's a point in your life where you can't imagine anyone being as important to you as your parents are. And then if they don't become an enemy, then you have, I don't know, differences in ideology and who you want to be versus who they want you to be. It's like we're at that moment where it's like, oh, our relationship has changed. And I don't know if we're going to get that back. And that closeness that we had seems so far away. I would say even more than that, it just seems so final. That last bit, maybe because she's in live versions, she's always saying never change. Never change. (laughs) God, I won't. You don't either. (laughs) Never change. What would you say is your favorite lyrical moment? That is a good question. Thank you. Well, can we just put aside that that deep breath, that inhale is not a lyrical moment? We'll talk about vocal performance in a minute, David, your favorite thing to talk about. But for now, let's simply discuss lyrical content. What is your favorite lyrical moment? Years go by and I'm here still waiting, withering where some snowman was. That's so beautiful, so devastating. And unfortunately, it sums up the way I'm feeling now more than it ever has. Great job, Tori. Thanks, Tori. I think for me, when you're going to make up your mind, when you're going to love you as much as I do, there's something so beautiful to me that speaks of unconditional love, that speaks of honoring someone enough to say that you need to love yourself as much as I love you. You're a perfect person. There's something really beautiful there. And my second place winner would have to be skating around the truth who I am, but I know, Dad, the ice is getting thin. Oh, God. I know. No, it's great. And how in the middle of that beautiful phrase, she adds the word dad. We didn't even talk about that. Skating around the truth who I am, but I know dad, the ice is getting thin as Mm. if he's telling her the ice is getting thin. Be yourself. Find the truth of who you are because it's it's still a conversation. Mm -hmm. I know dad. And there's some denial on her part and the father saying, you know. Yeah. I can see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
All right, what's your favorite vocal moment? It's gotta be that inhale. Right before the final, when you're gonna make up your mind at the end of the bridge. That one? I remember that being so striking to me at the time because I hadn't heard anyone else use breath like that mm-hmm. as a way to kind of tell a story or create mm-hmm. a moment. And it seemed so, if not vulnerable, just authentic mm-hmm. and dramatic in the best way possible. I don't know. I think that's pretty amazing. Mm. What about you? That's a good moment. Um, I think my favorite vocal moment would have to be how she says, you say I wanted you to be proud of me. You say I wanted you to be proud of me. Proud of me. Run of me. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love that whole bridge. I think that the way she attacks those words with the power in her voice, I love it all. So, but I especially love proud of me. Yeah. Know exactly what you mean. Vocally, that's my favorite moment. Proud of me. Proud of me. <laughs> proud of me. <laughs> What's your favorite musical moment? Oh, okay. Well, the bridge is amazing. But I go back to what I said earlier. I think this is one of the most satisfying, inviting choruses Tori has ever written. And I think when you're going to make up your mind and the piano right there is so beautiful and pleasing. Mm-hmm. So my favorite musical moment is, of course, the bridge. But I, you know, I love a showpiece. You do. And a show pony. I love a show pony. <laughs> I'm team band. Give me the power. Louder. Bigger. You know what time it is, David? What time is it? It's time for Ellie Poetry. Oh. Oh my God. <laughs> this is my favorite game that we do that no one plays. The poetry. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been doing this whole little earthquake season. You know, they're capital words in the booklet. So every episode we pull the capital words and we ask people to send in their poems using those capital words. Not just, not only those capital words, they could use other words too, but those capital words must appear. And so for precious things, the capital words were boys, Billy, and nine inch. Wow. Nine inch. That? All right. Yeah. Well, she didn't disappoint with that. Okay. These are our entries. And the way we do it is I just read them out to David and then David picks the one he likes the best. Yes. So <laughs> it's not really fair, but oh, it's I honest. Oh, I think it's fair. Yeah, it's <laughs> honest. Okay. Here's the first entry. These boys don't know I've got Billy. In a pinch, I've got his nine inch. These boys don't know I've got Billy. In a pinch, I've got his nine inch. That is like perverted Dr. Seuss. I like it. I mean, there's no way these poems are not going to be perverted just with the <laughs> words that we've got. Am I right? So that was the first one. You like it? I do. Okay. Here's the second one. My sweet Billy, that sweltering summer, that glean in your eyes, and those nine inches would always separate you from all the other boys long after winter had come. My sweet Billy, that sweltering summer, that glean in your eyes and those nine inches would always separate you from all the other boys long after winter had come. I think I'm going to have to give it to that one. It really tells a story. It really does, and I love right? that it's really like a meditation, a fond memory on a penis. You know, the other one tells a story too. It's just a brief story. In a it pinch, yeah. I've got his nine inch. Right. I was in the mood for something a little longer today. And she worked winter in there too. Well, he worked winter in there too. Because that winner was Eric Reed at Mr. History 82. Woo! Eric, you've picked yourself up a collectible from Artorium's vault. <laughs> and all you've got to do to get it is send us your address. We're just going to fish around in the vault and pull something special out yeah, for you. We've got a lot of stuff, collectibles in the vault. <laughs> so it's no telling what you could receive. A magazine, a disc, who knows? It's like a Tory subscription box. Right. <laughs> do you want the capital words for winter? Yeah, they do. Okay, so the capital words for winter are... This one's going to be difficult. There's a lot of them. Mm. White horses, proud, skating, melts, change, drifts get deeper. 
Dang, that's a lot. You have a lot to work with, people. You might not even need extra words. Drifts get deeper. Change. Melts. Skating. Proud. White horses. Now, do they have to use white horses as a phrase and drifts get deeper as a phrase? Yes. Or are they allowed to switch those around? No. As a phrase. As a phrase. Yeah. Okay. That's drifts the way get they're deeper presented. Yeah. And white horses. Well, yeah. technically, white horses falls. White is on one line and horses falls at the beginning of the other Still. line. Still. Okay. Man, Sydney Palmano really left the caps lock on for this one. <laughs> drifts get deeper. Change. Melt. Skating. Proud. White horses. So if you want to play our Tori Amos Lil Earthquakes poetry game, all you got to do is tweet at us with a poem using all those capital words and hashtag L-E poetry. We won't find it if you don't hashtag it. So hashtag L-E poetry. And on the Happy Phantom episode, we'll pick the winner for winter. This is a group called My Other Band featuring Odalia. Snow can wait, I forgot my metal. Wipe my nose Get my new boots on I get a little warm in my heart When I think of winter I put my hand In my father's glove I run off Where the drifts get deeper Sleeping Let's take a minute. Let's play a little bit of Yanta's cover. I always wanted that myself. I played this at a piano recital once. It's all coming back to me. Love that moment. That's sort of like back up into the song. Bum 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 into the song. I especially love it live. In the Earthquake songbook, she references a Russian music box, and hearing it stripped down to just piano here, I can kind of hear that influence of a music box. Oh, definitely.
That surprises me a little bit that those are all eighth notes. Right? I thought maybe she was doing it more with her voice then. Winter, more than a lot of her other songs, the piano actually follows the melody of the vocal pretty mm -hmm. closely. Yeah, it does. is just so, I don't know, that's just so beautiful. plays this live, she just rocks this part, always. There's orchestra and horns here on the album, but even solo, every time it's still so full and equally as, I don't know, emotionally fulfilling. And a workout, you know? Boom. that we've returned back to childhood in a way or old you know how they always say old age is like childhood do you feel like because she takes that big pause and then we go back to the simple chorus it's very cyclical it makes the song feel very cyclical like you could just loop it there forever you know oh, yeah and there's a looking a looking back with the benefit of experience mm -hmm. and I think as we talked about, the the words are the same, but they feel totally different. And the fact that she can capture that with just the piano and her vocal is really amazing. Never and here she's playing with the tempo, slowing it down. Subtly though. 
What a composer. We'd of course like to thank Yanta for that beautiful instrumental. You can support him at patreon.com slash Yanta. Please throw him some support because he's almost done with her entire catalog. What's he going to do next? My catalog. <laughs> I have some songs. They're I'd, very good. They're very good. From your solo album, your first solo album, Little Eve Quakes. Little Eve Quakes. <laughs> Thank you, Yanta, for letting us play that. And Yanta, you're amazing. Keep doing what you do. And everybody go support him. Patreon.com slash Yanta. We'll be right back to talk about the music video. Mm. This is a cover we love. This is by Berlin-based guitarist Stephen Beanwald, and we'll link to this on our show notes at songsoftoriamus.com. So it was a variation on the same theme. That was a little bit from the Fade to Red audio commentary. What do you think, David? Should we watch the video? I think we should. This is from Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue number two, the winter 1993 edition, where they talk a little bit about this video. You want to read that? RDT says, since we're talking about kids, they are prominent in a couple of your videos. You seem to have such a rapport with children. And it's Tori pronounced says, rapport. <laughs> Tori says, I absolutely love them. The young ones really understand what's going on. They understand, but they can't put it into words because they haven't experienced it. They're very close to feeling these feelings. They ask me about sex all the time, and they're five and a half. Now, I've had to really think about how to answer them because I don't want their parents breathing down my neck. There are some things that they're not ready to hear. They can understand the concept of when you grow up and you will use that thing that wiggles between your legs. You don't have to worry that it's just there for no reason. When they're old enough, it will grow as you grow and you'll understand it. They say, is having a baby like eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? And I say, very similar. What kid asks that? And on the set of your video, all these right. kids are flocking around Tori dressed as flowers. Tell us about sex, Miss Amos. Miss Amos. Miss, miss. Kids today, 
always call people Mr. and Miss more than that. we ever did in my age. I agree, but I love it. I do too. Mr. Mr. I'm like, Mr. is my father's name. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here's more from Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, but this one's issue four, Fall 93 edition. This is from an interview with Cindy Palmano. RDT says, we haven't talked about the winter video. And she says, oh yeah, that's a nice one. RDT says, the scenes with the children are wonderful. And Cindy says, she adores children. Children adore her. That's a really nice thing, actually. It's quite rare. And RDT says, did Tori have the bell-bottom look before, or did she come up with this for the video? And Cindy said, it wasn't us. It was the stylist, Karen Binns, who was fantastic. That was her look. She and Tori went and made that look. I just fed colors that I was interested in. They made the look. I think it was just to do with nostalgia because winter is about her father. It's a nostalgic song. And certainly that's the way I interpreted it so that it would look timeless. It does look a bit timeless, that video. It could have been shot at the same time as Sesame Street. It has a Sesame Street feel to me. It's very simple. We never see a colored sweater, right? Tori talks about a colored sweater in the fade to red commentary. I remember coming out in, um, you know, a collared sweater because Karen Benz, the stylist, thought, well, yeah, I mean, child, woman, girl, it all works in a sweater. And Cindy <laughs> said, what, are you, what in the world is she in? And um, Karen said, well, I love the material. And Cindy said, well, do something to it, Karen. And she said, girl, I'm going to push knit in a way you ain't never seen knit pushed. And Cindy, I think, was thrilled by Karen's ability. Karen Benz um, is one of my closest friends, and she is the stylist that I've been with since the beginning. It must have gotten cut. I guess. She, Even though Karen Benz promised to girl push knits in a way it's never been pushed before, we don't see that. We might see it. Let's let's watch the video. So everybody, okay. we're going to watch the video. Let's watch it together. Pause now. We're going to do our video commentary. We're not going to bore you with Tori's commentary. We're going to bore you with ours. So here we go. We're ready to go. We're going to press play when I say one. Well, I'm going to say three, two, one, play. So get get ready. Everybody ready? God, is this confusing? Okay. Three, two, one. One, play. Okay. So there's a blue piano on our screen. Tori's parents still have that. You know, and it's one of the most popular things to collect, like Tori adjacent. People collect those little blue pianos. Those are specific pianos. That's the same pianos on the cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. She looks so fresh-faced here. She looks so young. Maybe that's the knit sweater she's talking about. That's a crop top. The minute sweater crop top. Tori's dancing with some kids. I can't believe they made that look. I would kill for one of those sunflower hat face things. I can get you one. Oh my god, the kids left her behind. She's wild in this video. She's always zooming in from off frame. Right. Hi. Hi. It's me, Tori, again. And I'm back in close-up. And going through boxes and walls. That's a great shot, though. She's all white now. She's in white. She's sitting on a tooth. Is that a tooth? <laughs> no. Oh. This is a strange angle for her, no? Yeah. I love her f- fearlessness. 
with that camera. She's not afraid to be in all white. In these er, yeah, I mean, in these early days. For lunch. Is that kid really playing? I think that was just like a, an homage to her being a child playing piano, right? Yes. Was there a tiny little man on that piano? I'd never noticed it before. She's very theatrical in a way, you know? Can you explain to me again why Cindy Palmano was so put off by the shots of Tori playing piano that were inserted into Crucify, when to me these seem kind of similar? Kind of similar, yeah. Well, maybe that's not what Crucify was about. Oh, question mark. Who am I? God, those sad flowers. It makes me so sad. Time. She pops back up in. Where's the frame? Is that a tiny little man on that piano? I think it's a Buddha. Oh, okay. Not really. I never noticed it. Oh, it must be the hinges. Mm. Piano keeps going, even though she gets all fisty there. What do you mean? She oh. raises her fist dramatically like she does. Mm, and the piano keeps going. Well, you going. know she's only play syncing to the video. This what? Just, this is the album version, but oh. with some edits. I love her. <laughs> she was wild and fearless back in the day. Oh, here we go. The bridge. Gray hair. Gray hair. See, but it's trick of the light because we're going back in time and it's Tori's hair. Unless they found someone with gray hair to do that part. Oh. Dang, that lipstick. Flame haired siren. I miss those earrings. Trophy? Participation. Mine. The flowers have come back. When you gonna make up your mind. So she refers to this in the commentary that she recorded this part of the video last. After the tiredness of the day and the tears and hugs. Yet her foundation is meticulously applied and flawless. Well, she talks about how Leslie came and did her makeup. And then they recorded it. And I think that's important. Like, to shoot chronologically... Especially if you're going for an emotional resonance, you know? She's gonna hit the lens. And then you still get that kind of like open, honest look that you get at the end of Silent all these years, you know? I want her to say edit there. And Cut Jan- it again. In a Janet Jackson kind of way. Oh, no. It's so truncated. I know because the video version uses only the edit. Oh, the video to me is, feels a little dated more than you know the song itself. But it felt dated even then because of the bell bottoms, no? Well, timeless. Can you believe they made that look? I think that Cindy Palmano was disavowing all involvement. Like, no, they they did that. Believe me. <laughs> they went to the store. Did I say Karen Benz? Let me say it again. It was Karen Benz who did it. No, Benz I don't think that's what it. she meant. It was a Benz job. No. <laughs> it was a Benz side job. It was a Benz side job. Are you gonna make up 
That was Michael Stipe covering Tori Amos in 1995, and this is an artist called Dolphin Sampling Winter and Caudalite Snooze. Winter, for me, really is my origin story with Tori. It's the song that gripped me, it's the story that the Winter song tells and how it resonated with me, how it mirrored things in my personal life um, at the time when I first listened to it and also as I have grown as a person. I came across the song when I was watching Within Temptation music videos on YouTube back in the days when there weren't any adverts, video of Within Temptation covering Crucify. And I thought, I really like this song. I wonder what the original is like. So I listened to Crucify by Tori Amos and I was like, I really like it. But next in line was Winter and I listened to the song. What I love about Winter now, and as I loved then, is the story that it tells. At the time of listening to the song, I was probably about 14 years old. I'm 27 now. I remember being in a really unhappy time in my life where my dad was very, very ill with um, a terrible cancer. And he'd been away in hospital for a number of weeks, having had some pretty serious surgery. and he came home and I remember listening to this song and relating to it and at the same time I was struggling with my sexuality with being gay and I wasn't accepting of it and I remember watching gay porn and my dad walked in and saw me watching it and he said to me what are you watching that for and I froze and I quickly closed all the windows as quickly as I could 
And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And he walked out, and I left the room, and uh, kind of hid in my bedroom. A while later, I came back out and I went to test the water, see what my dad would say. And I walked into the room and he was on the family computer and I was thinking, oh God, oh God. And he didn't say anything to me. I said to him, oh, I, I wasn't watching anything bad, you know. I was, I, I can't remember what I said, but I basically tried to dismiss it. And um, my dad didn't really say anything. So about a year and a half later, my dad passed away and I was 16 years old and I was devastated and that day I came home and I sat in my bedroom and I put winter on repeat and I sobbed my eyes out and um, it was immediately like an ointment skating around the truth of who I am. I know dad that the ice is getting thin. That has only grown in prevalence to me. As I moved out of my home and went to university and I came out to my friends there and then I got a job in the city and I came out to my friends there and next thing I know, the only people who don't know about my sexuality were my family. And um, as I became a bit more clued up about internet um, histories and things like that, I was thinking my dad totally knew. And on his deathbed, he said to me, you're my best mate. And I remember thinking that's his way of saying that, you know, don't worry about it. Finally made it to the live section, David. We've skated around the truth of who we were. Oh my God, the ice got so thin. We've skated all the way to the live section. Can you believe it? And that's the truth of who I am. Give me Tori live. Finally, we've gotten to the truth. Finally. The truth hurts. Um, We're doing a precursor to the live section, actually, because I want to do something different with the live section, which we'll do in a minute. But before any of that, let's talk about her promo appearances, because this is... I'm very disoriented by this. Why? This is the first I've heard of it. I'm a creature of habit. Now we're doing something different. What is it? Tell me everything. No, I'm fine. I can go with the flow. Only the fifth episode of our show, David. You couldn't have built a habit. You'd be surprised at how quickly I can do it. (laughs) Let's do the TV and radio appearances of note. Okay. So the very first time we have on record that Tori ever performed the song publicly as Tori Amos on record is from Live at Montreux on July 3rd, 1991. And do you want to say something about this? This is one of my favorite Tori performances ever, filmed or otherwise. Not just of this song, but of any song. I think it is incredible. And if I needed to show someone an example of who Tori is as an artist or a live performer, I would probably choose this. Not Rain, New York, or Sessions. I think it would be this performance. Just saying. Roll it, Ollie. When you're gonna love you as much as I do When you're gonna make up your mind Cause things are gonna change so fast All the white horses are still in bed I tell you that I'll always want you near You say that things change 
am blown away by this performance because the songs are so new and so fresh and she is so present in them. And I don't know, it's incredible. And this, <laughs> I've probably said this before, at just any point in my life, I would like to create one thing as moving and beautiful as this performance of Winter. Will that ever happen? Probably not. I mean, few people can say they've created something as moving and as beautiful as one of Tori Miss's greatest songs. Isn't that incredible? And she so, has like 30. I know. That match up to that. So I wouldn't beat God. yourself up over it, David. <laughs> this is from Video Smash Hits in Australia on the 23rd of May, 1992. This is an interesting one. Tori, your dad was a was a preacher. Still is. Still is. Um, how was it growing up with a preacher as a dad? <laughs> well, you know, I'm really close to my dad. Yeah? But when you're a uh, good Christian girl, it's a bit difficult because you have different ideas on things. Even though I love my dad, our beliefs aren't exactly the same. Yeah, did it affect your uh, music now? The way you've taken music now? Well, that's where I put all my passion. I was like a wild colt. Yeah. And I had this, um, you know, it was always good girls and bad girls, and I was like the bad girls much better than the good girls. And I put it all in my music. This is from one year after her first Montreux performance, David. This is, she's back at Montreux, a seasoned performer now. Jaded. Jaded. The industry has chewed her up. July 7th, 1992, the day it spit her out. I like that it's summer and she's going to waltz out in a bathing suit. I know. A flowered bathing suit. I love it. Why not? Um, do you have anything to say about this or you want to let it speak this for is, itself? It is shocking to me that Tori has been pretty consistent throughout her career and that she was still a new-ish artist, but she had enough confidence here, even performing at a festival to quiet the audience when there are a couple <laughs> women talking, I guess, yeah. in the first row. And she's like, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Did you pay to hear music? Pardon if me. If you're going to eat popcorn, you could at least offer me some. This is my fucking show. <laughs> Get her out. I don't like Lady. that. Lady. I don't like it. Well, you have to say, like, yeah, she's a newish artist on the scene, but these are intimate shows. And if she's going to confess her deepest, darkest feelings to you, then you're going to fucking sit there and pay attention. That's true. And as we know, she'd been playing bars and lounges for Forever. years and years. So it's not the first time she had to quiet a heckler, I'm sure. I'm sure. And I feel like probably 18-year-old Tories at the gay bar playing. And she's like, excuse me, homos, can you stop talking? Ma'am. Did you come here to listen to music? Does this Bonnie Tyler cover or what? Do you think she's quieting down the guys at the gay bars? Like, ladies... I'm here. Do you want to hear Evergreen or not? Because I can just leave. <laughs> I can swear that you put a dollar in my tip jar to play Olivia Newton-John, Green Sleeves. Can you stop blowing each other for two seconds? For two fucking seconds. Anyway, <laughs> this is Live in Montreux, July 7th, 
Here's from Night After Night, Alan Havey, 13th of October, 1992. And now she's gone through about a year or more of performing this song. So it's solid. She still plays it almost every night on her tour. But here is a promo performance. And what's interesting to me is that she's doing this really rich, meaningful ballad on TV shows and on radio shows. Like, it's who she is. She's not afraid of it. She's not embarrassed of it. She's not trying to find the hottest single. You know, she's not doing, like, the peppy girl. She's not doing happy phantom. She's doing winter, and you have to pay attention. Boys get discovered as winters. Flowers competing for some. At first I was wondering why they weren't hitting on me. I mean, I was really hurt. Even though you're that age, you go, God, you're trying to be a woman. You, you yeah. want men to at least say... I can relate, yeah. Hi, honey, will you play Misty for me? No. Well, you know that. Yeah, I know. And so, hey, what are you doing later, by the way? I'm yeah, just well, kidding. My dad got hit on, actually, in the clubs. Did he? Yeah. He's, he's a minister. Okay, well, that's we can do another theme show, I think, right yeah. there. Yeah. This is Nikki Campbell's show, BBC Radio, on October 30th, 1992, right before Halloween. Boys get discovered as winter melts Flowers competing for the sun Years go by and I'm here still waiting Weathering where some snowman was Mirror, mirror, where's the crystal palace? But You ready for this, David? I've never been so ready. Y'all ready for this? Jay Leno, young Jay Leno, hosts an eager Tori Amos on the 12th of January, 1993. And that girl does winter. Here we go. Do you have anything you want to say about that? I wish I could go back to these moments in time because like you were saying, 
she was performing songs that caused people to have to pay attention. And I'm sure it made people very uncomfortable. When you think about everything that was happening in music at the time and what was being performed on television, the fact that this woman walked out and was performing these introspective, relatively quiet songs, staring directly into the camera, commanding your attention. I have to believe that that seemed strange Mm -hmm. and also made people uncomfortable. And I was already so in the Tory zone at the time that that was just what she did to me. But I have to believe that it started conversations or... I don't remember seeing any Tory on TV in 92 except for like the videos i don't remember seeing the live performances until 94 so i can't speak for this one in particular but i always thought she was really cool you're in a world you have to imagine what 1992 was right you got nirvana you got pearl jam you got Soundgarden. you got a lot of like grungy dudes and like kind of everyone's trying to emulate that sound even juliana hatfield things like that but then you get Tori Amos, who's just her and a piano and i always thought that was so bold and yeah strange probably And her performance style is really confrontational. She does look right into the camera. She's not embarrassed. She doesn't have a drummer and a guitar player and a this and a that to like kind of mask what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. So it is probably a conversation starter, but I always thought it was, she was really cool. She was cool. She was cool. (laughs) But I was pre, I, I was predetermined. I was predestined to love things like that, obviously, as a gay man, love people who are really talking about that and having conversations like that Mm. at that particular time in my life. So I don't know that everyone thought she was cool, but I thought she was cool. What's the first live performance on television you remember? God with Caton when they were on Leno or Letterman. I can't remember. With the the full band? With the full band and he's like buried in there in his little hat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When she did God, that was the first live performance I remember staying up for, catching, being obsessed with and recording it on VHS. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And she was wearing the net dress. Yeah. Oh. And then I convinced everyone at school the next day, like when we were, I was playing that song, somehow, I don't remember how, but I convinced everyone at school that, that those like, <laughs> at the end, that was her singing it live. <laughs> no, she does that live. She did it live. <laughs> yeah. She did her turkey trot. Right. Whatever that was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I did. That was my big lie. Yes. That's why I started lying about Tori. On Tori's behalf. On Tori's behalf. And then you no, started great. plagiarizing her lyrics and yeah. passing them off as your own. That was 96 voice for Pele. Whatever, Miss. I just Comer. wanted to find Miss Comer. I wanted her approval. No. Moving on in her promotional career, she performs Winter Again at Musique Plus Montreal in 1994. Here's that. same time uh you know we were battling it was like darth vader and i don't know mary magdalene i think um he and i were always on opposite sides of belief systems but yet i loved him dearly it's a it's a weird thing when you kind of like love this person and yet there's 
so much fighting. Just, he wanted me to be a certain way and I wanted him to be a certain way and it finally, as we, had, uh, we agree to disagree, so now we can like have chicken di dinner together on Sundays because um, I don't need to change him anymore. I mean, he's, he's, he ain't bad. Look, he knows, he knows Pearl Jam, he knows who Tool is. He knows Nine Inch. I'm very proud of him. He's 65, a minister. And he's like, oh, Pearl, awesome. Not bad. He's all right. This is October 24th, 1998 from VH1 Storytellers. And you know what? You know how there's a bootleg that surfaced of the full unplugged? I didn't know that. Yeah, like the full unplugged. Like it's a really crappy bootleg. Someone snuck in a tape recorder. An audience recording? An audience recording. Really? Of the full unplugged. You've never heard no. that? No. It's been around for 20 years, David. No. It's That's been amazing. around for a very long time. There's a full unplugged They had out to there. have been like with a full camcorder. Full... It wasn't a video bootleg. Oh. It, it's a it's a tape recorder oh, that I someone see. must okay. have snuck in. Okay. And you can right. hear it mess up on Cornflake okay. Girl. No, you I'd... mess up. Well, still, I didn't know that, but. Yeah, it's really fascinating to listen to. I want a full bootleg of storytellers and sessions mm -hmm. so if anyone i'm just trying to manifest what i want these days so this is her clip from storytellers doing winter At that taping of Storytellers, there is a quote from her talking about winter. She says, I was leeching off the men in my life. Don't get me wrong. They were leeching off me, but I didn't like who I was. So my dad and I were walking out in the old farm, my grandmother's farm. She really wasn't a nice person. Now my dad, he's like James Dean or Billy Graham, though there's no real difference there. I was telling him how bad I felt because of the first album being so bad. And dad said to me, he'd never said it before. Tori Ellen, when are you going to accept you are good enough for you? So that, I think, was probably the spark of winter. And we had talked about it earlier, you know, being from an actual conversation. I don't know where this quote came from. I don't know if there's a full recording of that story. As far as I recall, Storytellers airing, it didn't have that piece. And Shay has been working her little heart out trying to find it. But yeah, so that quote exists. So either there... Either it was videotaped and we've just lost it over time or someone has a full bootleg copy somewhere and I need it. But anyway, in other scandalous winter news, can you believe that 10 years after she has the brazenness to come out on Jay Leno's stage to the do winter? The audacity to do that. She's like, let's commemorate that event with a 10-year reimagining of winter on the Jay Leno stage for Librarian. That's pretty great, actually. Mary, uh, no. Angels, fuck it. Mm. <laughs> winter. To celebrate 10 years, almost 11 years, to celebrate doing winter before, here she is on the Jay Leno stage doing winter again.
you know what? She hasn't aged a day, but he has. Ooh, Shane! Here's Tori on the Today Show Weekend Edition in 2005 to promote The Beekeeper, and she's playing Winter. This is from Sirius XM Radio, December 18, This one, this is, I think, her most recent performance of Winter as a promo, like on a promo stop. And this is from PBS Infinity Hall Live, and this aired October 6, It's interesting to listen to that kind of as a young girl in like what you said earlier about the Montreux performance, how they're so fresh. She's so young. They're so new. And then hearing it there in 2013, which I think was recorded in 2012, but Mm -hmm. to hear it as a woman who's kind of grown up, I love tracking things like that. What do you think? Me too. And again, she could just choose not to perform many of these songs, but they're always present. And I think it's very intentional and there's a reason she's not on autopilot. So it's really fascinating to me that she can bring a freshness to this song every time she plays it, that a song like this, that's six minutes long, that is a ballad that maybe could be tedious to play so many times, never feels stale always feels like she's in the moment. I think this is one of Tori's most oft-performed songs. I'm willing to agree with you. And particularly later in her career, I think she continues to perform it more often than Silent All These Years. What do you think about that? Um, I do think that it's one of her most oft-performed songs. As we'll see, she's performed it over 400 times. I think possibly more than Silent All These Years. You might be right, but... We got bored in the adding. So we just agreed to. <laughs> Whenever it comes call it to math, we're like, uh, who cares? We called it Let's a draw. Let's just say we're right. So 
I wanted to do something different with this live section, and I wanted to invite our audience to tell us if they had a special performance of winter that they wanted, that they requested, or a story of a certain time. So we're going to play those, and we're going to chart the live section that way. Because for the most part, winter is wholly untouched. Winter hasn't evolved into some crazy arrangement. Winter hasn't really changed she promised it would change never did it changed so fast but we're still waiting we're still waiting withering some would say in 1992 tori amos performed winter probably at every show or almost every show i'm convinced yeah like we're not even going to get into it no it's impossible to do the stats for the song because none of the set lists are complete the set lists aren't complete for 92 the set lists aren't complete for 94 and of the 94 shows, we know that she did it 71 times. Of the 92, at least, of the seven of the 92 shows, we know she did it at least like 30 times. And it's about a percentage of what set lists we have when winter appears. So it's such a high percentage that we can assume that she did it at all the shows. Mm-hmm. All the shows. That's a lot of shows. Of so since we played the one in 91 and 92 for Montreux, here's one in 94. Are you ready? Hi, I think, hope I've got the right number. I'm phoning up to give my message about winter and the best version that I ever saw Tori Amos doing it live. Um, so this, and I'm nominating uh, March the 3rd, 1994 at the Leeds City Varieties Music Hall uh, in Leeds in England. It was the first time I'd gone to see Tori on my own. I've been with friends before, but this was a tiny Edwardian Music Hall venue and I was stood right at the back, but that meant I was in a direct eyeline with Tori and she sung it directly at me and I had just come out that day and it blew my mind. I had spent all all day long playing winter in the on the piano and I got to the venue and stood at the back waiting for her to get there and sing this song and she finally did and it was an incredible moment and it's never been bettered uh, but every time I hear it especially every time I hear it live it takes me back to Leeds in 1994 and uh, yeah that was my first meet and greet afterwards too and it was just a really intense moment and it's the most vivid thing that's ever happened. And yeah, so that's why I love winter, and that's why I love that specific version. Well, handsome-sounding stranger who did not leave their name on our message machine. Um, Unfortunately, there is no recording of the Leeds 94 show. Unless you have one, then please send it over. Um, But as far as our records go, we have no recording from Leeds 94. So we're going to play... London 94, three days after Leeds. I know it's not the same, but it's the very first recording we have of Winter after that phenomenal sounding performance that you locked eyes with Tori and had a spiritual experience. The very next recording we have is this recording of Winter. And I love English audiences because they're so quiet. You can hear a pin drop at the beginning of this song. So here's Winter from March 6th, 1994 in London, England. I'm not 
Here's one from 1998 in Fort Lauderdale on the opening night of the tour. And this, you want to hear what Tori says? Here we go. Hit it, Tori. of you out there not fluent in audience bootleg Tory chatter what she's saying is she says my father's here tonight I remember he took me for this walk in the Virginia mountains and it was snowing and it got inside my boots and it made my feet cold but I'll never forget it because it was the first time in a long time that we had connected I wrote this for him and then she starts the song so that was Fort Lauderdale April 18th 1998 and they connected through snow isn't that appropriate this is from October in New York City, This was the first time that I truly felt winter to my soul live. I don't know. There was something about this show. This is December 5th, 2002 at the Magnus Arena in Denver. It was a very big venue. And the day before she had done that award show where she's photographed with Tom Jones, you know, in that silver, beautiful silver dress, giving him an award of some kind. She did the most amazing secret time or Scarlet's Bar. Scarlet's Roadside, whatever. Or Scarlet's Roadside Cafe, yes, uh -huh. thank you. So there was something about her performance of Winter that night that just really got me in my soul. It was the first time, and I came out thinking, like, that was the first time I really heard Winter, and everybody <laughs> looked at me like I was crazy, because <laughs> it was a song I hadn't really connected to all my life. Anyway, uh, December 5th, 2002. <laughs>
from Columbus, Ohio, and I have a story about winter from the Columbus, Ohio, August 20th, 2003 show. My mom and I had won sound checks and meet and greet passes from our local radio station. I had just graduated from high school and was packing up and moving away for college. My mom stuck in a picture of me from when I was about Tasha's equal age at the time, so I was three in the picture and Tasha was about three at the time. My mom showed Tori that picture, and they shared a lot of mom feels and uh, talked about, you know, me at that time, and that I was, you know, older now, and my mom's message to Tori was, hey, it goes really fast. And so her request in that moment was for gold dust. So fast forward to the show. I got my request, which was time, and then Tori played the first three chords of gold dust. If you go back and listen to the recording, it's clearly gold dust. And then her monitor crackles, and the moment was lost for Gold Dust. So she started playing some sequences as the uh, crew came out and fixed her monitor, and then she just went right into winter. And as our Tori does, she knew exactly what was needed in that moment, and it was one of the best versions of winter that I had ever heard. So going back and listening to that recording is always uh, a little bit of an emotional roller coaster, knowing that my mom was so close to getting a request that she had wanted uh, for so long and continues to request, um, but that was definitely a uh, really strong winter moment for me and for my mother. It's a sign. Okay. Let's fix this frequency. I've always said Robert De Niro shows up in my monitor. He, he, let's figure this out. It happens, you know. It happens. Is it the piano? What happened to it? Okay, where's Trev? <laughs> What's happening right now? Some, there's something wrong with Boozy, so just we'll give him a. Husband, is it okay out there?
Don't panic. This is from Florence, Italy, May 30th, 2007, and it has the I'm not stupid improv. I'm not stupid, David. Who would accuse her of such a thing? No one. I was 21. Do you think I had a bag of cocaine in my car? If I did, if I did, you'd never know it. Hidden 
Michael Phoning from Toronto, Canada, Instagram at Mike Light. My fave winter was from October 2007. It was a gorgeous nine-minute solo version. And at about five minutes and 30 seconds, when Tori whispers, you save that things change, my dear, some troll from the gallery shouts, oh, snap. Now, this was edited on the lake in Boots, but if you turn up the volume, you can hear Tori reply, eat me. And the audience roars, and she starts to play the piano aggressively. This is Lori, and I'm calling with my favorite version of winter. It was 11 in Chicago, and she actually played it for me. I had talked to her the day before. She signed my winter sheet music, and I told her I had never heard it before, and it was my absolutely favorite song, the first one I ever fell in love with. So she asked if I was going to be at the show the next day, and I said yes. And she said, okay, I'll play it for you. And she did, and it was beautiful. She played a beautiful little introduction before it started, and I was completely in love. So thanks a bunch. Love you guys. Bye. This live version of Winter is my favorite because the emotion of Tori for his first concert in Russia with the audience who participate is very touching. The bridge is powerful and the end is so beautiful. This is from Russia with Love.
you say I wanted you to be proud of me I always wanted that my Hi, Ephraim and David. This is Emily Cousins. I was calling to tell you my most important winter live experience was in Amsterdam on October 8th, 2010. Um, that was her show with the Metropole Orchestra, her first time playing with an orchestra. So it was obviously then my first time seeing winter with an orchestra live. And it was a super powerful and absolutely amazing experience. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Here she is with the quartet in Moscow on October 2nd. I'm going to give you one guess. Do you think she does this with or without the quartet? With. You're right. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> David knows his facts. I rumble with a drift skin deeper. Sleeping beauty trips me with a frown. Unrepentant Geraldine's 2014. This is from New York City on August 13th. If you're anyone who is anyone on the 2017 Native Invader tour, then you know that Tori ended her final main set with Winter right before she broke everyone's heart. Were you Keanu Reeves? When I understand that he was in the audience crying. Keanu was? That's what I heard. Shut up. I don't up. know if it's true. Keanu's everything. Have you noticed lately like these Keanu memes that have been popping yes. up? Yes. Yes. And he's lost his beard because uh, he's Ted again. Oh my God. Mm. This is 
winter from December 3rd, 2017 in Los Angeles. About an hour after this, we were at Tory Prom at the precinct downtown LA. Best night of my life. DJed by the beautiful Mateo Sagade. Here is gray and the fires So many dreams That was a live section that was intimidating for other reasons, David. I'll say. Trying to find the winters that were like really intense for the, people. The winters of our most content. Thank you. Why didn't you use that joke earlier? I we tried. Been using it this you whole keep talking. Time. God. <laughs> David. For now. Oh, when are you going to love you as much as I do? Oh, never, probably. Probably never. <laughs> well, we can keep working on it. Oh, We've well, got years and years ahead of us, right? It feels like it, doesn't it? <laughs> well, because it's mean, true. We keep redoing the things that we've done. Well, so we once once that's like Tori herself, some would say. I know. Once that <laughs> once we get through the little earthquakes era, I mean, I think we can bang out her two thousands work. We'll right? see on on one or two retreats. I think. Yeah. First of all, thank you to everyone out there who listens to our show. It means a lot, and we couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much for the support. If you feel so inclined and you really like what we do, go ahead and head over to Patreon.com/songsoftoriamus, where you can help support us continuing to make exciting and Torytainment for you. You can jump in at any level to support. At the $5 level, we have Tour All Night. At the $10 level, we have Drive All Night Plus. It's very exciting. If you want to follow us on our social media, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Songs of Tori Amos. And go to our website, songsoftoriamus.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. We hardly ever send out a newsletter, so you might as well sign up. But when we do, you know it's good. Yeah. We're very excited about what we're trying to work up for Christmas. We'll see what happens. Anything else, David? This has been an exhausting episode, but not as exhausting as I thought it would be. I feel frozen over. Your hair is gray and the fires are burning. Head over to iTunes and leave us a review. But now we're on Spotify. So head over to Spotify and listen to us there. Also listen to our sister show, Never Shut Up. Constantly. Well, we never shut up. I feel very, I feel seasoned. Do you? (laughs) I've gone through the As much as she does when she performs this song now. Yeah. She's like, eh. I've gone through the seasons. I know. Would you say that you're more excited about winter or happy phantom? Well, we've done winter, so I'm more excited about Happy Phantom. Oh. I like to look ahead, not I back. I do, too. I'm excited about Happy Phantom. I'm really curious to know what that song means. You don't know? I mean, kind of. I know what I think it means, but I'm really excited to explore it. You're the Tory professor. You better know what it means ahead of time. Well, I'm going to prepare my lecture. Okay. I still have to prepare my you have lecture. Time. Yeah, I have time. We'll, we'll hopefully have that out this month as well. Um, David, it's been a pleasure as getting always. cold with you. Don't forget to grab your mittens. What about my boots? Wipe your nose. Mm, I need a Zyrtec. Anyway, thank you to everyone for listening. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. We'll be back with Happy Phantom. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.
Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoryamis.com.